Today's chat is brought to you by the support of all our Twitch subscribers. Through the patronage you provide the Focus Fire chat team through the Twitch platform, we are able to provide you with the weekly podcast as well as the website and other aspects of Focus Fire chat. If you have any interest in becoming a subscriber of the FFC and gaining access to some exclusive features over in the Discord server, please be sure to visit our Twitch account and click on the subscribe button. If you're an Amazon Prime member, remember that you do have a free subscription to Twitch every month that can be used for this. And for those of you who are already subscribers, thank you again for your generosity. You may have heard the whispers of guardians gathering in the shadows, exploring the mysteries of this world and the worlds which surround us. We are all in search of truth. Sometimes we need to focus that search, focus that fire. And so we come together. Join us. Join the discussion. Welcome to Focused Fire Chat. Welcome back for episode 159 of Focus Fire Chat, recorded live on February 22nd over on twitch.tv slash Focus Fire Chat. As always, I want to give a big shout out to our live chat here with us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Our topic for tonight's episode is going to be a look at the Book of Unmaking. But first, let's run through a quick introduction of those on the show for tonight. As always, this is your host, Blue Crew 86 Next up, we have our own master of social media, the one and only green-eyed music lover. Green, I hope you're doing well. How has the week treated you so far? Good. I got my dredging pin in, which is apt timing, considering that what we're talking about tonight. <laughs> you have been unmade. I have been unmade. And it's funny because I've gotten so much um, salt from people on Twitter about me having the dredging title and having the pin and proudly displaying the pin. It's just like, guys, I'll kick all your butts and, and damn it. Come at me. Come at me. <laughs> There's no defense. <laughs> nope. just, it's like, <laughs> I have it. Bring it. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, I guess speaking, actually speaking of that that topic, that was kind of the, the theme for the question this week that you had for everyone over on Twitter, too, right? Was, kind uh, of was. What, I, I think that's going to, I mean, that's going to tie into my my overall feeling of, the conclusion of this book too, but you want to, you want to run us through what the, uh, what the community question was for this week. The community question for this week was, would you ever take up the mantle of the road of sorrow, truly giving yourself over to the possibility of becoming that, which is dark. A little bit of a wordy question, but it only ran for 11 and a half hours because I posted it today, but we had 166 votes and 60% of people said they would. They would totally walk the road of sorrow versus 40% that didn't. So it's like, hmm, hmm. And a lot of people were really funny about it. They're like, oh yeah, I'm already there. I did that years ago. I just, I mean, a lot of people would use thorn and now they have malfeasance and uh, some people actually had a, a defense, like Doom for Zombies, a friend of the show, said that he would do it because he would it would be the way to balance the universe and between the light and the dark is to be able to embrace the shadows a little bit. So, I mean, I also got some hate mail from a little bit of a, a RPR who is also a friend of the shows for 
being dredging and like leading people down the wrong path. So I don't mind. It's been fun. <laughs> yes. A lot of people are like reluctantly saying yes, they would go there. And some people are like, I've already been there. And some people want to say no, but they can't. So it's like, yes, my evil plan is working. You will all be <laughs> <evil>. dredging. <laughs> Oh man. Well, I know that like like Greed said, it was it was a it was an interesting one to hear everyone's feedback on it. It's always it's always fun to to hear the the opinions, I guess would be the safest word for it of yes. of, the com- of the community. Um do we have well, I guess next week is going to be a chat on Mir. So, you don't probably have a you don't have any a uh, teaser for a possible question for us on that one, right? Not for near. I'm going to refer to beard on that. Okay. Baby. That's fair enough. Um, so, all right. So I know, I know both of us are looking, actually really looking forward to diving into this particular discussion. So we'll run through our standard intro notes and then we're going to get right into it. In our last episode of Focus Fire Chat, we discussed the morality of a guardian. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to rate and, if you can, leave us a written review on iTunes or comment on the episodes on Podbean or whichever podcasting app you use to enjoy podcasts. Reviews are extremely helpful as they not only let us know what we can do better, but help continue to expand the FFC family, which allows more and more perspectives to be heard. To those of you who have already taken the time to leave us a review, thank you. As many of you already know, Focus Fire Chat is a gathering place where the intent is to offer a week-long, in-depth view of a particular subject from within game lore, with a special focus on the Destiny universe. This chat begins every Tuesday morning and runs until the following Tuesday, with topics decided by the group via a poll that begins every Friday and ends on the Tuesday morning of the new chat. Every Friday, at around 10pm Central, we get together to stream a high-level summary of the previous week's chat for those who are unable to participate. If you're a fan of lore in all its various forms, be sure to also check out thelorenetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of some amazing content that covers a number of different titles and mediums. This will also be the new home for the Focus Fire Chat episode note archives and articles going forward. Our next chat is going to be a discussion on the extra lore topic from February, Near. However, as always, please be sure to weigh in on the poll this weekend to let us know which topics you want to discuss after that. Links to that poll can be found on either Twitter, at FocusFireChat, or within our Discord server. Before we jump into the information and thoughts that the community had about the Book of Unmaking, however, let's have a quick chat about this week's Lost Lore. And for Lost Lore this week, uh, there was there was a couple of options. Like Green, I, I know you had put down, you know, what are the books of sorrow? Uh, because mm-hmm. it's kind of, <coughs> excuse me, it's kind of a relevant conversation or relevant question, obviously, for this one. Um, I want to, I, I guess, I'll kind of, I'll kind of ta- actually take both the questions that you put on there, Green, and those questions mm-hmm. are what are what are the books of sorrow, and is the book of unmaking is that actually a book of sorrow? We see we see this referenced in the in the actual book as the shadows refer to this as its own uh, addition to the books of sorrow. Um, respectfully, I disagree uh, with it. I think that it's like a a companion for the for the 
theology, I guess, if you want to call it that, of the hive. Um, because the thing is, is like the book, the book of unmaking, if we if we want to call it that, is really the transcript that was handed down, or not even handed down, but discovered by the shadows. And that transcript was really just scrawled notes of Dredged Yor from information that he had gathered and put together. Most likely, I think it's a pretty safe assumption. It is, I reiterate, will be an assumption that the information mm-hmm. that he gained it from Zior, uh, because Zior was very heavily influential on uh, Dredgen Yor's corruption, and it's it's probably it would Can make a lot you... of sense. Yeah. Can you reference back who Zior is? Yes. Uh, so Zior is the wizard who was in the story <laughs> of Rezl, in uh, the story of Rezl Zir, the triumphant <laughs> fall, and Ro- uh, I'm trying to remember the Transforming legend. Rose into Thorn. Well, I, th- I'm, I was trying to remember the Grimoire card. It's triumphant fall and the one right before it. I, I think, I can't remember. I want to say it's in legend Rezl. Um, but Probably. when Rezl goes to the moon for the first for the first time, uh, he goes to confront the the whispers of nightmares underneath the surface of the moon. He discovers the hive. Uh, he has he discovers that the hive is active. And once he discovers the hive is active, one of the very first figures that he interacts with is your uh, the betrothed. And uh, this is before she became the unwed. Or uh, And so the reason why she is referred to as the unwed is because in the entry, the triumphant fall, I believe it is, uh, mm-hmm. Rezel actually kills the knight who it would seem was who she was betrothed to. Uh, and so in that process, she then starts corrupting. She basically starts whispering into Rezel's ears um and that is kind of it's it's kind of implied that that is the beginning of the corruption to Rezel. Uh when oh, Rezel whispers. Yeah, when Rezel then defeats the knight, uh he takes as a trophy the bone from the knight uh or the the bones of the the hive that he he kills and he grafts those onto the hand cannon that he carries which was known as Rose. That hand cannon would then soon would then become Thorn um which is where we get that con- that that uh connection there between Rezel and and Dredgen again. Um mm-hmm. but that's that's where Zior kind of gets input into the the picture. Uh when we saw Thorn for the very first time, Zior was actually the wizard, the final wizard that you had to defeat in the summoning pits. Um and that's actually a really important location even for this book because the thing to remember about the summoning pits from way way back in destiny one is that the summoning pits were a a locus of control for the hive to experiment upon ogres they were constantly trying to figure out a way to control ogres that was actually there there was at one point an ogre in a strike that went by the name of fogoth and that was actually the entire that was the entire point of fogoth was uh this strike was the summoning pit strike uh, before the ogre was just a nameless ogre originally it was fogoth um and they had chained Fogoth into the summoning pits and were basically doing experiments to try to figure out a way to either uh, control him and increase the power, you know, all this other stuff. But the entire point of the summoning pits was that it was an experimental lab by the wizards 
to develop things. Uh, we see the hive being very, very candid with the idea of forced evolution. Uh, they are constantly trying. I mean, we, we see this in um, Destiny 2 on a couple of the scannables on Titan where you get your ghost making comments about the the breeding rituals of the hive uh, where they where they force evolution upon themselves via different various different means uh, and so there there's a there's a very heavy in uh, heavy influence on experimental forced evolution within the hive and this is actually kind of to tie back into the book of them making is a as a concept that gets carried through that book quite a bit um, but in in regards to is the book of unmaking a book of sorrow no uh and and my reason for that answer that kind of blunt answer is we know what the books of sorrow are we our guardians our guardians actually have access to the actual books of sorrow uh at the time that this this particular quote air quote book was being put together uh this was basically um it was it, it's it's like a, a cliff notes version of what the end what supposedly the end goal of this particular sect of hive were working towards or the unmaking uh, mm-hmm. and that is important that's another important piece to keep in mind as we go through this conversation it's going to come back up quite a bit is the question of is this actually the end goal of this whole process um, which is where the shadows really actually find a lot of their their uh their their tenacity with what they're doing is because i think i want to kind of argue after reading this book multiple times um this is actually a question of are the shadows really the villains or are they just anti-heroes uh there's there especially tebin's character tebin's character in particular i have a kind of a, a feeling of it could go either way. Uh, just from the presentation of the information that we have about Tebin so far in game, uh, Callum and Orsa, I, I kind of feel more strongly that they have already kind of fallen off the path. But Tebin, really, given the information that we have about Tebin, I, I kind of have a feeling that that's that's not quite the case just yet with him. Um, but. The Books of Sorrow, the Books of Sorrow are basically the holy text of Oryx. Uh, they, they are the the autobiography, I guess, in a way, of yeah. Oryx's line. Uh, and it's a educational uh, slash holy text. I mean, because remember the, the Hive view, the the siblings, the, the original siblings as deities in their own right. Uh, but it is specifically based around Oryx's lineage. Uh, we do not have. Even, or go for it. I said I would even say so much as if you look at the size difference of the verses in the uh, books of sorrow, the Oryx from the Taken King. It's so much longer because you're getting stories from Oryx. It is quite a bit longer versus if you look in these cards, each verse is a sentence. If that, I would almost equate these like. Because there's seven precepts for each of these cards, right? Mm-hmm. There are, yeah, there are seven verses for each chapter. I would almost say that these guys are more like the tablets of ruin in that respect. Now, granted, they're not. They're not a tablet of ruin. These are no, just. No, this is like, like this is saying, like this saying, is scribblings. Yeah, this is saying this is like attributing uh, basic poetry with biblical texts, like a bib- a biblical chapter, a biblical book versus mm-hmm. a a poetry on. 
you know, uh, on religious content. Like the, it's not saying that it's, I'm not going to say that it's not applicable to the hive theology. Um, I kind of have my own theory about that, uh, that we'll get into later, but Mm -hmm. it is definitely not, uh, what I would consider and what a lot of people would call source material, uh, because, and that, that's also another thing to keep in mind too, is this is at the minimum three degrees removed from the source material that if is being discussed from the source material, right? right which, uh, like I said, I'm, I have my own kind of theory on that, but at minimum, we're looking at three degrees removal because you're taking, you're taking the translation of Teben, who is so Teben is translating the hive scrawlings of Yor, who is transcribing. Mm-hmm the understanding that he had of what was being told to him by another character that we don't know. Again, right. I assume I have an assumption that it was your, um, which ties into my own personal theory on what's going on here, uh, which I, I, I will try to definitely get into, but that that's my, that's my point is that at the, at the very minimum, there are three degrees of removal from source material and they are being translated at least on two of those points by people who are not natively fu- uh, natively fluent in the language that is being uh, used to communicate. So there's a each each degree significantly in the process of translation through uh, information. Each degree significantly increases the chance of what's called a lacuna or a, uh, a lexiconic gap which is where mm-hmm. you have terminology that just doesn't translate. Um, even even in humanity, we have lexical gaps. Like there, there's words that don't don't have the equivalency in another language. So to take an alien language that's not even based on anything in human, or not even based in anything humanity would have access to, that that alone is going to increase that probability. Then, then you add in, okay, you're going to have your who is a human trend or writing things in hive based off his understanding of what's being told to him. You know, like this is, this is someone taking field notes off someone who was taking field notes off of, you know, however many item, how many degrees that goes. So it's, it's just, there's, there's a lot of room for, even if this is actual true, content there's a lot of room for legitimately mistakes to be made um mm-hmm. that's not even entering into the fact that we know for a pretty strong degree that there is the strong chance that there was being misleading being done um given who was informing your of what was going on or who assumedly is informing them uh you know given what looks to be the end goal here that also would be a lot of uh, lies being possibly there. Even in the verses themselves, it talks about not trusting what's being told. Uh, yes, so which we're, is breaking my head a little bit. When I'm- well, I mean, it and it it kind of goes back into the idea of like, you know, what what are what is this book of unmaking? Um, mm-hmm. And and so really, that's going to really be the transition point, I think, into kind of our introduction is. The Book of Unmaking is really honestly it's a it's a collection of excerpts and translations from let me let me back up even broader. The Book of Unmaking that we have access to is really a book with three stories. Uh, I kind of mentioned this before the recording. Uh, so we have 
three different things going on in this particular lore entries or these particular lore entries. We have the text, which is translated by a group that's dedicated to exploring the shadows of a man who left it behind. We have a collection of their understandings of those texts. So every chapter is going to have seven verses. So we have the translation of each of those verses. Then we have what's called the understanding. You'll have anywhere from the first to the ninth understanding of of the text. And then you also have the scrawled thoughts of one man's justification for the tragedies that are coming. Um, The closest that we've had to this before having this is Osiris. Uh, With Osiris, we were at, we kind of were challenged and asked what would drive a warlock to madness. And here we see the challenge of the question of at which point does the search for answers become an obsession with the forbidden? Uh, you know, at what point does the search for salvation become its own form of damnation? The shadows who are who are just desperate in their search for the, what they what they view as the truth that lie behind the legend of Dredge and Yor approach really honestly, it seems approach this inquiry with the appropriate concern, but it's not enough. Uh, they they had no way to be aware of what they were getting themselves into and to be bluntly honest that lack of preparation is really not their fault we find out their their lack of awareness of what was going on with your was actually due to the censorship of that information by not just the speaker not just the consensus but the entire city um Mm -hmm. and and i you know, I want to make that point too here is that a lot of times we see a, a oversimplification of what we consider villains in, in video games or in stories. Uh, and John Goff and the team who put this book together have done an amazing job with presenting a very, very uh, diverse layered presentation of characters that before this were very simple very 2d these this adds a third dimension of significant levels to the shadows of yore um and it's from these notes actually of tebin that we can actually glean a significant level of information not just about the shadows but the overall world of destiny we have possible connections to other major figures that are now made visible mm-hmm. as well as very strong possibilities of explanation on events which have been in game since the start of the series um, we have enormous ramifications on our concept of what could possibly be the timeline for a partic- for particular eras. Uh, within the verses and general statements of the understandings of the shadows, we get presented with details that basically lead one down the path of their eventual what's called unmaking. Uh, and though at the conclusion of this book, we are going to be left wondering if this is truly an evolution or just another elaborate trap, another another trick to consume the light and actually instead of evolve devolve the the person who is following these statements which is another point to be made about the level of shades of gray that are being presented to us in this world that up until this point have really been a didactic system there's only been light and dark really now we're getting into the nuanced examination of that very thin line that lies between the light and the dark and the understanding that that line, even though it seems very thin and it seems very razor sharp, is actually very, very broad. There is a lot of gray, and this book does a very good job of presenting that shade of gray and actually 
ask, actually asking the question of at what point does does the shadow become the darkness and what t- at what point does that shadow become the light? Where where are those transitions from dusk to dawn between mm-hmm. those two? Um, and Green, I don't know if you really want... I kind of threw in my idea of how we should, uh, I guess, go through the the, the book. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at that particular approach, if you had I, anything before we jumped into it. I think that's a good idea if we go through Tabin's notes, because you're right. These are three different books smashed together, or at least three different, not necessarily stories, because they do tie together. Right. They do. Respects, they do but, strongly tie. I mean, and, um, and the reason why I kind of, oh, sorry, go for it. No, I was just like, they they relay and turn back on each other and help each other out. But they all, all are very different. Tevin's notes don't necessarily directly are in response to exactly what is said in the verses. They relate to it a lot of times, but it doesn't, it's not his exact explanation of what was being said prior. Some of it's more of their story and how they got to find these verses. Right rather than the actual explanation. So it's not like scientific field notes. But I think if we start with Tevin, like you had in the notes, I think that's a good place to get the idea of where these came from. Right. And I and so to give a, a high level of what I think are we're gonna try to get through these, it's it's we made a con a Green had made a comment about before we started the recording, you know, this might be a multi episode breakout depending on how far off topic we we find ourselves getting um but mm-hmm. the i the idea is we're going to do uh three or four passes of the book uh the first one the first pass through i want to kind of look through tevin's notes which is actually the last segments on the each of the entries uh and the reason why is tevin's note kind of lays out the events and the timeline for the particular events within the the book of unmaking uh, once we get through that, I want to go back through and I want to do a quick run through of the verses. Uh, so again, we have seven verses for each of the chapters. There are nine chapters or nine entries, I guess. I consider mm-hmm. them chapters. Um, I So when I refer to chapters, it's going to basically be each individual entry. In, entry. Um, uh, and so those that should actually be, honestly, there, there, there might be a few that we get stuck on, but I think that one's going to actually be a pretty quick walk through um mm-hmm. and then the third the repeat the last kind of detailed walkthrough i want to go through the understandings which is basically so you have tebin who's explaining what's going on then you have the verses which is basically the base text of what they've translated and then there's the understandings which is the shadows analysis and their thoughts on uh basically a summarization of the seven verses for that particular chapter mm-hmm. um and then I figure we can, if we still have time, I want to kind of conclude with some of the, the problems or maybe some observations of implications. And that, that, particular, that particular discussion might, we might need to take that offline or take not offline, but take that and uh, do a let's chat or a, a, a secondary episode on that particular thing. Because there, I mean, to be fair, there is, there, I wouldn't call them problems, but there are questions and challenges to our understanding of how destiny is set up as a world and timeline from this information. And I think that Mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely worth a, I don't want to rush through that explanation because it could get very detailed very quickly. Um, but so, yeah. Uh, so if that's green, if you think that's a good way to kind of, to kind of go through it, um, I do actually, 
Um, so let me, let me kind of introduce the overall quote air quote here, seventh book of sorrow as the, as the shadows of your call it. Uh, like I've mentioned, it is nine chapters with seven verses each. Uh, you see throughout this, what's you, what's, uh, um, it, it's actually a borderline, what's called hedon, hedonophobic paradigm. Uh, hedonophobic is the idea of a fear of physical pleasure. Um, so you probably are more familiar with the opposite, which is hedonism. Uh, hedonism is the obsession or the love of physical pleasure. Hedonophobic is actually the the flip side of that. Um, another concept that would probably be very similar to or very familiar to a lot of people is the idea of what's called mortification of the flesh. Um, yes. And mortification of the flesh, a lot of people are going to recognize that and connect it to Christianity. Uh, that that is that is a valid connection. Actually, mortification of the flesh, the, that term actually does stem from the Christian, rather stem from the concept in the Christian faith. But it's not applicable to just Christianity. Uh, there's actually a lot of the concepts of mortification of the flesh in shamanism. Um, but basically, what mortification of the flesh is is that it's a view of a physical way to mortify or to put to death uh, sinful natures uh, of an individual person. And the entire point is sanctification of the soul or of the body. Uh, usually that transcends into the soul, which is why you you mortify the flesh to transcend the spirit. Um, in shamanism, the concept of shamanism, uh, this is actually a way to increase your spiritual power uh, they view this as an endurance. Uh, they view the endurance of pain or the denial of physical a- appetites as a way to increase your spiritual power. Um, and so, the, another another way of describing this is self denial. Uh, you will see that many cultures have examples of self denial in order to achieve status or power in either both either or both spiritual and physical means. Uh, Green, There's, I know you, a- yeah. Yeah, it's a small sect in well, not a small. There's a sect in Buddhism that actually practices yes. that very yes. thing. Then that's probably the most modern example of a lot of what is in this book itself. A lot of the things that are said in the verses reflect back onto those concepts or the um, what is it? The four the four precepts or the the yes. four way path. Yeah. The the other thing that's very similar to here is there's a couple of Persian poetry or poet. Persian poems um, that refer to what's referred, what's called the Baha'i faith. I think that's Baha'i. Mm-hmm. I want to say that is um, that is correct. I uh, actually know somebody who's Baha'i. Really? Okay. I, mm-hmm. I I'll be honest. I did. I was not very familiar with Baha'i until I started looking at this particular um, uh, format. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very very interesting. Uh, this, mm-hmm. So the the first one, or well. The one that is known in regards to Baha'i is the Seven Valleys, and that is, I believe it's Baha'u'llah, I, I want to say is the, I don't know how, there's a lot of apostrophes in his name, and I don't know, it's a Persian name, but the mm-hmm. one that I'm actually more familiar with is the Conference of the Birds, and that's by a Persian poet, poet by the name of Atar, who went by the name of Atara Anishapur. Um, and both of these concepts have uh, they they have the idea again of this kind of glorified. Oh, it's not glorified, but it's like this. Um, it's I don't the even want. It's not, of, it's, it's not romantic. Yeah, it's not romanticized, but it's like this this um, this very very genteel version of 
why you go through self-denial and the stages of self-denial to kind of achieve a higher understanding of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the seven valleys, you have like, uh, the, the idea of de- denying yourself different, different appetites, different pleasures of the flesh. And that's not just like in sexual terms, that's like actually like food, um, right. you know, like, comfort like there's a lot of concepts of wearing like um rough rough clothing uh which would you know scratch be very uncomfortable that that idea the the uh, self-flagellation of uh you know which is a very common thing and uh, hollywood loves putting that in movies is mm-hmm. that self-flagellation uh which is actually was uh punisher season two they're the main character pilgrim he, he angels does. and demons by dan brown does that too oh no, okay yeah yeah, yeah. It's it's a very I mean it's it is a very popular trope that they use. Yes. Um and to be fair, it is a it is an actual thing that was done. Um then that's and the the entire point of that was it was a punishment. It was a mortification of the body in regard in in order to punish it for doing something that was considered sinful to allow for the the sanctification of the spirit. Um, so this was this this concept by no means is something my entire point here is that this is by no means a concept that's unique to destiny. Uh, you have mm-hmm. quite a big number of actual ancient cultures that have similar thoughts, actually, that are presented in these books or in this book. Um, so that kind of is a, a general introduction here. Uh, so the first chapter is or green are you are you okay if i start if i just jump into the first yeah. chapter okay i was cool. just gonna say like there's one line in particular that is basically the summary of this first group with tevin are you talking and that's about the very the last line he says before the the hand scrawl note thing mm-hmm. the purpose of our efforts yeah. however sinister they may appear is to grasp the unknown so it may be challenged should the time come when we are faced with its ire so right off the bat it makes me think that these guys are just going out and researching that they're not necessarily trying to be bad guys. It's not like henchmen. They are going out and researching and they're trying to figure out, can we walk the straight and narrow down this road without falling off to either side? Blue, do you have, is that a fair, like, yeah, no, I think that's a great, that, I think? think that's, I think that's a good one. Um, really, honestly, this first chapter Tebbins translate or Tebbins analysis or analysis of Tebbins notes here uh, really it, it begins with a presentation of the shadows which to be fair we don't ever see them referred to as shadows in this book uh, we call them shadows uh, but it's yes. not really actually known when they became formally they became formally known as the shadows. Um, so just just keep that in mind. I'm going to refer to them as shadows, but the, they they did not refer to themselves as shadows throughout this entire this entire entry um, or these these entries. Uh, so we see a presentation of the shadows as a group that is interested in a concept called hierographology, uh, which is basically the study of sacred text. Uh, and this is hierographology of the hive that actually stemmed from their discovery of the story of yore. And then was led to the subsequent discovery that the entire story of Yor was a giant cover-up and lie that was told by the consensus about the Fallen Guardian. Um, so this is really an idea uh, presented here by Tevin that the entire the entire point of them getting together 
And the entire thing that started them down this path was the fact that every time they asked a question, they were told to be quiet and stop asking questions. Um, so there was a lot of censorship going on, which, yeah, I mean, to be fair, isn't that far out of the realm of what we saw with the city in its early days anyways, because we had Osiris, Toland, the Sunbreakers. I mean, there's there's been a lot of things that we have found over the last couple of years playing this game that has been, quote unquote, wiped from the histories, Sunbreakers being the predominant one that keeps coming up. Um, so that that's really the I mean, that's my my big takeaway from Tebin's portion of cages is that this is an introduction of what what exactly is going on why why are the shadows doing this you know what what are we doing here what are we looking at so we're introduced to this group we don't really ever get a solid number the only names that get dropped are tevins and orsas uh which we have kind of talked off and on about orsa is the character who will go on to eventually come up with a way to cleanse the the new thorns uh, and invent a new way to smith those. And then Tebin seems to be the one that actually... And actually, to be fair, Orsa is also a very big figure in the translation of the verses, which we'll get into mm-hmm. in just a second. But Tebin seems to be more about uh, documenting their journey. Orsa is actually more of kind of on the forefront of pushing uh, the translation and actually doing the work and f- kind of figuring out the logic behind it. Whereas Tebin kind of seems to be the, the historian, if you will, in a way that's really kind of cages as far as like Tebin's involvement here or Tebin's notes. Uh, that brings us to actually the second chapter, which is called freedom. Um, and Tebin here mentions, this is where, again, they mention the internal decree by a van, by the Vanguard that actually prevents them from meeting with the shadows. Uh, and I kind of made a comment here about a possible connection to Osiris because we see, we see a call out to the fact that the Vanguard have an internal decree that re- results in them refusing to talk about Dredge and Yor or about anything related to questionable things. Um, if you cross-reference information contained within the Shadows of Yor, you see kind of a stronger uh in implication here uh, again this is kind of setting the stage if you will for why why the shadows were so adamant about searching out the truth for your it's because every time they kind of asked a question they were kind of pushed aside or outright threatened by yes. by individuals um i i really also want to call out in freedom tebin really presents them as non-confrontational uh, because Shax actually comes to them with threats. Uh, Shax actually really comes after them and tells them, you know, in no uncertain terms, do not pursue this. And Tebin, at least Tebin's response is uh, he completely understands. He completely understands uh, Shax's desire to protect the crucible. Um, and actually, Tebin notes it as being completely reasonable and within Shaq's purview due to the nature and the purpose of the Crucible at that time, which is basically a way to to train Guardians to become better. They they understand that Shaq doesn't want to threaten that delicate balance because, you know, again, given the legends of Dredgen Yor, we have, we're, we're aware that there were incidences within Crucible with Thorn. Um, you know, possibly 
you know, the tragedy, the possible tragedy of Thalor for one, uh, Mahanin for another, which wasn't in the Crucible. But, you know, there there are actual tragedies being done here. And if that's actually true, then the Crucible is supposed to be a safe place to train. It's not meant to be a live fire environment um, for Guardians. When I say live fire, I mean actually deadly. Uh, it's meant to be a place to kind of play um, flag football, if you will, between Guardians. Uh, mm-hmm. And so introducing a weapon of sorrow into that environment, Tebin's like, yeah, no, that makes complete sense that you would make, that you kind of feel you get your you know feathers in a rough. Like, that completely makes sense, which I find very interesting, especially later with Ghost Fragments like Timekeeper, uh, Widow's Court, uh, uh, Cathedral Dusk, like these, these other uh, entries we see kind of a a flaunting of the thorn gun by the shadows right now they have kind of a respect for Shax and his wish to keep that out of the crucible um and grin i don't know if you have anything for freedom yeah that one no my <clears throat> stuff is mostly in the analysis of the okay. of that oh, the verse the verses mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. um so this will bring us to the third chapter which is titled self uh, here is another kind of a, a look at, you know, the mentioning of the legend of yore as being available only via the word of mouth, uh, and and also a call out to the 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 absence of Shin. Shin is not around. Uh, Tebin notes really that this these missing pieces of of facts, these facts that are missing, really only prove to drive the group forward with more uh, intensity. Their initial concern, according to Tebin, is about this ability to corrupt a guardian. This 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 concept is very disturbing to them. Um, this is where we actually see questions that are very similar to those that we saw in Osiris, uh, the Grimoire card Osiris, being brought forward. Um, now I will also call out that we don't know, we have a vague idea of when this is going on within the time frame, Uh, and it might actually be that these questions were concurrent with the rise of the disciples of Osiris, but we don't know. We, this could be also taking place right after the exile of Osiris. We we're not really familiar or we're not really sure where and where exactly in the time frame this works, but if this is concurrent with the rise of the disciples or therefore right after the rise of the disciples, it would make a fair amount of sense given the internal decree that they had mentioned from the Vanguard about not answering these types of questions, because this is mm-hmm. actually the reason that Osiris was arguably exiled or one of the predominant reasons that Osiris had been exiled and gotten into trouble uh, is because the question here is that Tebin and Orsa and the the group are, that they're asking is like, okay, why is no one else concerned about the fact that a guardian can be corrupted by an external power? Like, right there, there is there is a an understanding that the guardians were inherently noble, like they they were kind of like protected right like where where is this why why is no one got a problem with this 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 is a big deal you know there's a lot of dangerous territory here and and understandably so they approach that they approach the exploration here and i mentioned this at the very top they approach this with a bit of concern and a bit of um 
tentativeness because they understand that this is this is dangerous territory. But the thing is, is this is where also they are being given a disservice by the vanguard because by censoring the depth of the dangers here, they actually set them up to kind of be caught unaware. They don't know just how dangerous it is. So in a way, this particular piece actually introduces the idea that it probably is not 100% on the shoulders of the shadows that they do end up getting, or at least some of them end up getting corrupted because there could have been easily a two-way street as far as dialogue goes, but because of the, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that it was fear or the discomfort that the Vanguard and the consensus had concerning this, this very uncomfortable topic, they thought to just shut it down. Uh, that We see this again, Sunbreakers. That that is a very common thing. They just they just remove it. You know, they just censor it out of the histories. And that just that, you know, both in real life and in destiny, that just doesn't work. That just serves speaking, to go for it. I said speaking of censoring, they can't find Dwindler's Ridge. They can't find any of these not, yet. not right, any of these places that are fabled to have been places that Yor and Shin both had traversed. A lot of those, they're just not there. Palamon is not there as far as like where yeah, they're at right now no, in the book. There's no, sacred, there's no sacred spot. There's no, it's it's all word of mouth. Uh, it's all legends. And I believe this is, I believe Self, hang on real quick, let me make sure. <clears throat> uh, yeah, so Self, he, he asks the questions. Let me make sure I read this correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite all the, I'm going to read this real quick. Despite all of this, we were not deterred. If anything, Orsa and I and the others who followed were driven by the difficulty of our chosen task. That a guardian could be corrupted, our gifts twisted, not by greed or lust or power, which call out there is, uh, real quick, that's talking about the Risen and the Warlords. Uh, he goes on, but not by greed or lust or power, but by influences beyond petty human desires was a concern greater maybe than any other. Were we not honored with our return because of some inherent nobility? If so, how could one of us, any of us, fall to damnation? Or was this heroic interp- interpretation of our role in the grander scheme nothing more than the surest sign of our blind innocence? After all, it feels good to imagine oneself a hero, morally superior and standing tall on the side of righteous hope. The question I, we, would ask then is simple. How well do we, any of us, truly know ourselves? And so, real kind of to reiterate, that is very in line with what Osiris was challenging you know, and, and again, we've had these challenges being presented to us from the beginning of Destiny. Uh, it's just now we're seeing this from from guardians who are not quote unquote guardians of legend yet. Uh, you know, this is not Osiris who has proven himself, you know, this super powerful thing. No, these are just regular guardians. And, you know, that they're just saying, hey, you know, this legend, even if it is just a legend, you know, Legends stem also, from a kernel of truth. And is no one else concerned that we can be corrupted? Like, that that seems like a big thing to be worried about. Can I just make a note here, too? No, this is, it's slightly, it's overarching over the whole thing. If you look at all of our cards from D1, where there's a mention of Dredgen, none of the actual text, none of the transcripts that are below, Dredgen is the title that is assigned to them in the descriptions, in the parties. But if you read anything down below, there is never a mention of Dredgen person, Dredgen Bane, Dredgen whatever. Those are names assigned to them in 
the description, not in the actual text below. They refer to each other by Tevin, by Orsa. Uh, well, um, some of the ghost fragments from the Crucible cards, they do refer to them as Orsa or Zyre. Or uh, right. Orsa the- or, um, oh God, Va- Vale, I think is his title, I want to say. Right, but it's not, it, where is it at, like... Uh, Ghost Fragment Thorn 5 is where you see them right after the Unwilling Sacrifice comment. Right. But um, look down in the actual transcription of you, uh, uh, user 1.01 mm-hmm, and below. Mm-hmm. There's no mention. They call themselves sister. Right, or, right. Yeah, they never, they no... never refer to themselves as their new names. Correct. Um, but there That's is... What- what I what I was saying, what I kind of was implying, pull it up real quick. Um, within, they don't view themselves as that person. Like they don't. I think the assignment of Dredgen is more of a moniker rather than who they are. Uh, so Ghost Fragment Timekeeper <clears throat> is two other guardians talking about it, uh, and one of them does make a comment that Orsa has taken to calling himself Vale. Uh, because he says, no, never seen anything like it. Orsa or Vale, whatever he calls himself coming out on top, wasn't even in his plans. So there, there is a kind of a backhanded comment about how they have started to take, or at least Orsa has started to take it. Uh, we do see in the anthology with Callum that Callum no longer answers to Callum's to Callum. He only answers, or it's implied that he only answers to his taken name, which to be fair, we never catch. Um, mm. there is within Thorn five, um, you're, you're correct, but they do refer to themselves as, um, weapons of sorrow. Uh, right. And then, uh, Dred- uh your will refer to Dredgen. Your does refer to himself as Dredgen, your, uh, which right. is within, uh, I want to say that's Thorn five. Four, I want to say, is where uh, Ward's ghost then gives us the translation for Dredgen Yor, which is the Eternal Abyss. Um, so there, there is that. Uh, let me see. Uh, but yeah, it's you're, you're the, right. I, you're right like, on the fact that they never. We don't have any recording of them referring to themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Others call them that. So yeah, the one, Shin, like, Shin, Shin refers to him as yeah. Shin refers to him as the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, timekeeper, uh, timekeeper. I think is the closest that we see a comment about Vale and Orsa, which are interchangeable. Uh, Orsa has started to to refer to himself as Vale, uh, but right. we don't actually we don't actually see Ve- uh We don't actually see Orsa say that. Like um, now. We do see in Cathedral Dusk another one, another of the shadow refer to Orsa as Vale. Uh, they are. This is the one where they are referring. They they have the thorn, the freshly crafted thorn. Uh, mm-hmm. He says this isn't like the stories we heard about. Your Vale figured this out, tamed it. Um, so this so, is. So would we say that Cathedral of Dusk happened after? Oh yeah, because Cathedral Book of Dusk. Unmaking. Ta- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Cathedral Dust takes place on the Dreadnought, and the Dreadnought wasn't around until Taken King, Rise of Iron esque so, era. Right. This, um, so this means that this whole book is the the start of their path down this road. Yes, completely. Yes, I a hundred percent will say, and that actually brings us actually to the next point, the next chapter, Whispers, um, mm-hmm. because this is where we actually get a 
a, an actual hey an event so everything up until now has kind of been a build up to what's going on and then in whispers we see the shadows discovering yours jump ship uh and you had just you had been mentioning that they didn't know where dwindler's ridge is well hey guess what um, yours jump ship is located at 1800 kilometers above the earth's surface, which is, uh, just to call out real quick, excuse me. Uh, it's very comfortably within what's called the exosphere, which is where, uh, satellites mostly will be orbiting. Um, so it's 1800 kilometers above the location of its master's death, which is Dwindler's Ridge. Uh, we don't know... So we still don't know if Dwindler's Ridge and Palamon are synonymous. Uh, the idea is that it seems like they are not. Uh, but to be fair, we don't have a confirmation either way on that. Um, but this is also where we see sentience in a technology that cannot be explained by the shadows. Uh, so the jump ship is actually noted as being linked to a, a idea of desire rather than anything, anything system-wise. Uh, so really quick note that term there because the jump ship is linked to desire we we've seen this a couple times elsewhere in other characters within destiny uh Tebin even goes as far as noting that the ship was in pain pain and anguish giving a ship of uh giving the description of the ship as being composed mostly of grafted bone of unknown death uh which i mean again can point to a number of possibilities predominant in my mind here is a connection to the worms of the ahamkara uh, to call back that strong link via desire. And also this entire verse, this, the verses in this particular chapter are a hundred percent focused on the idea of lying bones. So, you know, speaking bones, Hey, again, we've seen this before. Uh, Tebin says that as they approached the ship, there was what they thought was white noise at the time, but they would later look back and realize were whispers uh, and that their ears started to bleed, uh, which was a very similar effect to Zior's voice upon Rezel in his initial confrontation within the summoning pits and the Hellmouth. Uh, so they they actually, you know, there's a strong connection again to the hive and to the Ahamkara, the worms the undead bones, the unknown, no, the unknown death, you know, all this, all this stuff, uh, whispering, being painful, uh, whispering lies and all this stuff, um, which will f- quickly follow by chapter five, which was called purpose. Um, again, Tevin here calls out the ignorance of their actions due to their lack of understanding of the danger. Uh, and he goes as far as lamenting this as foolish and calls it the act of children. Looking back at this point, uh, when they more fully grasp of what they kind of had poked with a stick, if you want. Uh, and Orsa actually, this is where we see Orsa discovering the writing that would become known as the seventh book of sorrow by the group. So I saw chat actually asking, um, if we had, the if we had confirmation that the verses actually came from yore yes this is the point where they actually find the the etchings in leather that yore had made that they would then collect into what is now the book of the unmaking um in addition this is where my head starts kind of spinning uh because this is where we also learn the length of time since the hive were known to the guardians tebin mentions that they had quote 
heard the stories of the Hive, an ancient evil, and an ancient battle that turned Luna into a forbidden zone. Most held them as folklore, scary stories to counteract our natural curiosity, end quote. So, (laughs) I'm going to try to resist going down the rabbit hole that this opens. Because what this does is this begs a review of our understanding of the scope of time that has passed within game. Uh, The great disaster of Mare Imbrium, I I would argue here, is the ancient battle mentioned. But, if if this is true, the question again comes up, what how long is such an event that it would be considered ancient and even reduced among guardian ranks to a state of folklore? And furthermore, how are we going to reconcile this with the information from Ghost Fragment Cade 6, where we see a mention of faction accords being associated with a time period of 126 years? Um, we had always assumed that this faction accords had been in relations or was a description for the faction wars. However, with this new information here... Uh, and also, you know, Cade does mention at the time in Ghost Fragment Cade 6 that he was significantly older. You know, was mm-hmm. that was that faction accords just a hiccup in the faction relationship that had been already established even further back as the faction wars? Because we know the faction yes. we know the faction wars happened around the time of the initial construction of the walls. We know right. that the, we know that Mayor Imbrium happened after that point. So just those just that two pieces of information if Mare Imbrium is so far past that Guardians don't remember it or have agreed to censor it from the younger Guardians, um, and the city is in agreement because the city also would be aware of the great disaster, um, <clears throat> you know, if that had been so long ago, I mean, the the thing that I keep going back to is we have to remember that our time for our scope of time in reality is nothing compared to what the scope of time should be in destiny destiny the average lifespan is triple that of what our average lifespan is and that's just from golden age right but i mean that's, that's not just, even that's counting just, guardian age that's that's base humanity they have their right. lifespan tripled so 126 years in that scope i mean that's like 126 years comparatively that would be like a 40 40 year period today we would still remember this like there there is stuff that that i mean there there is i mean arguably you could you could also argue that there's there's uh mental elasticity issues and stuff like that but i I mean that that is there there is something to be said here that this does re this this requires a review of how we understand the scope of time for the city era if nothing else it, and it's not the ancient evil. We know that the Hive are considered an ancient evil. It's the ancient battle that is throwing a wrench in the whole thing. Well, it's also the fact that they refer to it multiple times as something of legend that no one has any knowledge of. Like, that, there, there is repeated comments here of the ancient battle, of ancient evil, of, you know, folklore, of you know, scary ghost stories, you know, there's just multiple comments about how this thing has been so long ago that there is nothing more than the word of mouth from the very beginning of this, this particular book. This has been presented as there has been something that happened so long ago that not even your guardians remember it. The legend of yore is something that is told as a, as a campfire tale to scare guardians. You know, that's that's the presentation here. And that begs the question is if that is actually the case, 
what is the scope of time that would be for an immortal creature to forget that information? Depends you know, on how focused on loot they are. Yeah, and then I mean, and then Doom is actually bringing this up too. Then there's the the information that we have from Ghost Fragment Thorn, where the bandits refer to no one's been to Luna. So you mm-hmm. have actual humans who don't really remember. Like there, I mean, the, and there's there's to be fair to play devil's advocate for myself here. There are plenty of explanations. We see a snip a snippet out of context of a of a conversation. Um, there are plenty of explanations that don't require any changes to our understanding. Uh, and I, and I'm completely aware of that. That's actually where my head hurts a lot because I'm kind of trying to play both sides in my mind on what this could mean. Um, and there is viable arguments for both places on how, where this falls within the timeline. Um, but so, so yeah, that's, that's where this question really for me starts to really get serious is at this point. Um, to kind of pull myself back onto, onto my, my analysis of the actual information though, uh, we do also, interestingly enough, have a mention of keeping research unbiased. Uh, Tebin presents this as they are trying to be as unbiased as they possibly can in their translation of yours work, which I find absolutely amazingly hilarious. Because these are, quote, the villains of Destiny, or some of mm-hmm. the villains of Destiny, and yet our heroes, Shin, of Destiny, are the most biased, lo- I mean, they're they the most biased examiners of facts ever. Um, you know, like, we have Shin, who's like, no, they're evil. Like, not even, not, not even thinking about, like, ramifications of that statement. But then you have the shadows here who are trying to keep their research as unbiased as possible, uh, which I just, it, the, the comparison there is very intriguing for me as well. Um, <clears throat> that brings me to focus, which is chapter six. Um, and so, like I had mentioned, they found the ship, which means they found Dwindler's Ridge. And so chapter six is uh, Tebin and Orsa hold a communion on Dwindler's Ridge. And really they, they come to the realization and they come to accept the fact, or they at least they've started to realize just how serious of an investigation this is going to be. Um, and they decide to continue down the path, which is, you know, f- to be fair, a life-altering choice. And again, they reiterate the questions that initially started them on this path. Who was the man before he was your? So who was the man that became your? Why was the story of this man so dangerous in the eyes of the vanguard and the consensus? Uh, and, you know, their their argument is like, would it not be more beneficial to use this tale or legend to instruct guardians on how to avoid the the damnation that seems to be such a such a contentious point? Why why was that not? Why why was it being censored? What makes this so dangerous? Um, and then also, you know, to be fair, what information is it, is possible now to be gleaned from what they refer to as the unknown worlds beyond the light? in this exploration you know there is to be honest a a degree of uh progressiveness here 
where you know up until now we have been they have been bound to the earth because you know again going back to the mention they have been they have been forbidden from exploring beyond the earth they had been forbidden from following their their natural curiosity their need for that to the satisfaction satisfaction of their wanderlust um, sounds a little familiar don't you think oh i i'm i the the problem with this entire thing is the more i got into reading tebin's notes here I sympathize a lot with Tebin because mm-hmm. the questions that he asks and and I understand that this is an autobiography if you will so it's obviously written with an agenda I get that but at the same time they are valid points um and you can argue that's why they're here is because they they're they're trying to make a sympathetic uh case for themselves well, Tebin does. He, he it's it's a successful attempt in my mind because these are questions that are viable in the face of being of finding out that there has been censorship or of any kind. You know, the question immediately is is like why? Why 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 did you why did you not tell us that? That is a very viable question that is very human in regards to anything. I mean, anyone who's ever dealt with a 5-year-old or below and has the conversation of you can't do that why it's a basic human question it's like that is that is definitely a, a standard challenge in in anything um and so this is again in in focus you see Teb and orsa kind of putting a doubling down on this like they they are standing on dwindler's ridge they're standing at the place that your died and the other thing to keep in mind too is that they are standing on dwindler's ridge the place that they didn't even know existed, like they didn't know for confirmation that this place existed, and now they have physical. They are they are boots on the ground on a place that was in legend. This is this is physical proof that these events could have happened, um, and and so they start realizing that you know the they start realizing a dangerous truth here. The stories that they've been told might not be true. The facts mm-hmm. that they've been taught might not be facts. You know, and so. That's where, you know, you can see some of the danger that the Vanguard and the consensus, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, for the consensus and for the Vanguard. By de- by denying this information, those who would challenge that denial, if they do find out, now you're at a loss. You can't, co- you can't come back from that because you've told them, no, it's not true. They find out that it's true. Now, anything you say, you, you've destroyed that trust. There, there's no really recovery from that. Um, and so that kind of brings us to uh, chapter seven, which is joining. Uh, chapter seven actually jumps forward in time. Uh, we don't really know how fur- how much further in time, but we find we that- do actually get an idea. Well, okay, do, because yeah, you get the it. transition between Andal Brask and Cade. Well, okay, fair, but I mean, I guess my point there is like we didn't know when uh, we didn't know when uh, chapter six happened. So I, I was mm-hmm. just saying, like the the exact yes, you're correct. We do have a point of this being this entry is concurrent with the death of Andal Brask uh, and the the um, ascension of Cade. I was going to say the ascension of Cade, <laughs> the tricking of Cade. I don't really know what you want to call that, but Cade taking on the mantle of the Hunter Vanguard. Yeah. Um, so this is this is and, and to be fair, this also points to uh, Green. Your question about Cathedral of Dusk, the Grimoire card. Um, mm-hmm. where that happens in relation that this helps kind of point out that that would have happened, you know, much later. Um, 
So in in chapter seven, we see Orsa uh, achieving the goal of acquiring, acquiring answers from the archives of an unnamed cryptarch. Um, I love how they're literally sneaking in these hive, like they have the trans, like not transcripts of everything, but they have like the the scratchings or the etchings, and they're sneaking it into the archives and trying to study like college students cramming be- before a test, making sure their professor doesn't walk in. Right, and I think I well, and see, I didn't, I didn't see. I read it differently. I read them as they actually bought the so. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read this because it's actually kind of funny how they mm-hmm. did this. Um, he said it's uh, so. This is from joining. It says it was sometime later when Orsa came to me with writings from a cryptarch's archives. We'd spent a long time, or a long while, attempting to translate the glyphs found on your ship to no avail. Great care was taken in furthering of our investigation. We weren't hiding our work per se, but it was not advertised. We've been scolded and scolded and warned enough times that we knew to continue our efforts in private as best we could. By this point, the Vanguard ranks had shifted. Brask was no fan of our work, but he was reasonable. His exo replacement was more pointed in his dismissal, a byproduct of his relationship with Lord Shax, I'd imagine. But that's neither here nor there. We traded with many cryptarchs over the years, and Orsa had long since made it a point to get on their good side. Even still, it took some convincing, and full-on bribery, to eventually get hands on the tomes needed to crack the mystery of the arcane texts. The books and writings we secured from the tradesmen were incomplete and mostly scholarly guesswork, but there were enough translations and competent theory to provide a foundation for our own interpretations. It wasn't long before the pieces started to fall into place. We still had much to learn, but we were certain of a few key ingredients. Yor had been to Luna. Whether his corruption began there or led him there was still unknown, and the glyphs he'd etched spoke of a great unmaking, the truth of which would be our own. So that's the uh, that's the full the full hand scrawled note that was with uh, joining. So there's a couple things here. Oh, go for it, Green. No, I was just laughing because it's just funny. Oh, I got. I just I love the idea of Orsa being like, "Hey, (laughs) hey, buddy, how's it going?" (laughs) You think it's Rahul? Rahul's the evil one. Like, doesn't even know he's doing anything bad. I go back and forth. Actually, I, I originally when I was writing this this translate or this analysis, I had put Rahul, but then I'm like, you know, that would do a you disservice think- to people because we don't, we don't know that. We don't now, know who it we is. We do know that it is a cryptarch of the city. That narrows it yes. down quite significantly. But we, to be fair, we have a few options. Like there's Rahul, there's Tyra, um, but Tyra, I don't see that being the case because Tyra's a guardian. Uh, so I would imagine that Tyra would probably not go along with this. Uh, there is the, and I constantly forget his name. Uh, there is the cryptarch that we see in the web comic uh, that Anna Bray and Cameron interact with, or not interact, but they steal their note, their notes of. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a cryptarch also within the. Uh, uh, I don't know what to call them, but the articles basically that Bungie kind of released a while back to tease different pieces. There was a cryptarch who was who had analyzed the Warsat network. I want to say he was he was writing something about the Warsat network and how the uh, satellites interacted with stuff. There was a cryptarch there as well. So there's a couple different names that have been dropped um, that could be viable here. Uh, but yes, in my head canon, I, I do kind of want to read this as Raul. Um, the thing is, is he wouldn't be... know he was doing something bad. 
just besides sneaking out information for somebody. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's, and that's the thing I'd like, right. I, it's just, I don't, I, by I no means is this cryptarch and by no means is this cryptarch necessarily at fault at fault. I mean, like they're, he is being bribed. So, I mean, there is a degree to which I'm like, eh, he probably knows that something's not going on quite here, but, but you also see the idea of like intellectual, uh, rebellion against censorship, I guess, mm-hmm. because it's like if the hive have been censored, um, I could also see the cryptarchy being like, well, but information's really necessary. You know, mm-hmm. I can see them being like, okay, we'll work below the radar to kind of further information here. Um, but the other thing here too is that uh, we see the books and articles acquired by the shadows as incomplete and mostly guesswork. So again, this kind of goes back to that that idea of lacunas occurring within the works. Um, we are dealing, <laughs> we are playing. I think I saw it in chat earlier. Um, <laughs> we're dealing with a game of Hive Telephone. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's like, and and it's even worse because it's it's Hive Telephone being played by people who don't speak Hive and who haven't have a partial dictionary that we don't know is actually accurate. So it's like you know. Uh, every time we learn a new little degree of how they're translating this thing, it just makes me think, I'm like, how viable is this trans? Like how, how reasonably reliable is this stuff? Um, so I just, I did want to call that out as well. Um, and that brings a, and then honestly, that that's kind of the end there, uh, brings us to the eighth chapter secrets. Uh, this is where they have, again, you know, they've, they've, they have progressed with the translation. They have a more quote unquote full translation of the notes that Yor had. And they have actually started to come see Yor's work as a map, not necessarily notes, uh, but a map, a, a addition, a supplement, a supplemental addition to the, the mythological books of sorrow. Um, again, a call out to uh, the time frame here because they refer to the, the books of sorrow as being theorized by quote researchers long before our time, uh, end quote, bring, uh, and that, that idea brings them more certainty, uh, that they are actually researching a possible path of transcendence. Um, they start realizing that the term unmaking is not a threat, but actually a evolutionary goal. Um, this, this is also where we see Tebin kind of, kind of underhandedly comment about these being autobiographical or autobiographical notes. Uh, Tebin kind of makes a point of saying that this, these notes were being made before they take the next step of their, their, before the next stage is undertaken, uh, which possibly is the process that was mentioned in Ghost Fragment Thorn 5, which is where afterwards you see them refer to themselves as Weapon of Sorrow uh, due to the quote that I absolutely loathe, unwilling sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, so this again, and this also again is another nod to the potential much more significant span of time having passed during the city age, uh, which ultimately points to the timeline being much more than what I think most of us assume right now. Um, you know, I think I saw the, I've been trying to keep an eye on our chat because it's going pretty good right now. Um, pretty I quick. I, I, I saw a comment being thrown about the current thought is that the great battle was 30 to 50 years ago. 
I'm like, yeah, that's but a is hard, it? That's, but is that's it? a hard number to assign? Right, and that's and that and I mean I because I'm I'm right there with with them. Like I I I have also assumed that's about the time period, but everything here in this book is is begging us to take a step back and ask, is it though? Because if you're talking about 30 to 50 years, I mean, again, I point to the fact that humanity's lifespan is triple that of what we're used to. So 50 years for a being that on average lives 100 to or 200 to 300 years, it, it's that's nothing. I mean, it, it's something, but that's like, you know, it, it's 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 not as significant as it is for us in reality. Um, so there's there's that effect there as well um but that will bring us actually to the last chapter which is in embrace chapter nine um and then this is actually where we get the first mention of the weapons of sorrow uh in this entire entry uh and this is again another knowledge another point of a comment about the knowledge of guardians with what they refer to as interest in old nightmares and rumors so another another little call out there again to the span of time having passed since the events within the saga of War Ward Malfer and Yor, and also the repeated mention of his personality being an exaggerated ghost story. So this is where we actually get Tebin making a comment about Yor was always thought to be an exaggerated ghost story, and I mean this is from Tebin who has stood on the soil of Dwindler's Ridge, has has been on your ship, you know. So he's he's basically saying like all these legends and all these stories that they said were just legends are not. These are actually events that happened. Um, and the shadows, basically through their translations, have confirmed that the hive did indeed have the ability to create forced evolutions, uh, which you know our characters and our players right now we know that, but. What this means is that when you combine that with the knowledge of what the weapons of sorrow were at their core points or at their core, we we see a conclusion that is actually much, much more dangerous than a single fallen guardian. Um, and this actually this actually leads to them asking questions, which then under which which then they, I think, are trying to use to justify why the events in Thorn five take place. Because they question now is, what if Yor wasn't the end game being sought after? What if this what if this hated figure was actually just nothing more than an accidental side effect of what they refer to as an ancient's arm race? And that, you know, basically what's happening is that the level of devastation that is being sought in this this arms race between, you know, whatever their ancient enemy is, whether that's the hive or the hive siblings against the light is actually beyond anything that we can imagine. You know, and and basically, if this is the case, sorrow isn't the road that needs to be concerned with. So this is going back to green your question to the community, you know. When you're looking at the final destination of the complete annihilation of the light and its guardians, in the face of that, what would you be ready to sacrifice in order to save everything that you hold dear? Would you be willing to sacrifice the what you refer to as the goodness in yourself in order to protect those that that you're supposed to be protecting? You know, it's it's the it's the catch twenty two of the antihero. And this is where, you know, to kind of close out my my particular walkthrough green, I'm gonna hand this over to you after I get done with this next point. 
mm-hmm. so we can start with the verses. Um, but this really finalizes what I'm starting to see as a presentation of the Shadows of Yore as not villains in the story of Destiny, but as as, as actually full-fledged anti-heroes or tra- what's called tragic heroes. Um, and honestly... What that means in my brain or what that translates into in my brain is actually there's a strong possibility that we are looking at a a redemption story here. Um, you know, we might actually get to witness a redemption of a shadow and even that of Tebin as Tebin Maybe. to be. Right, I'm, I'm, I said possibility. I know. It's just uh, because the only reason I say that is because this text is or this time where this happens is so removed from where we're at now in game that right no 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 and i and i and i understand that and i completely completely get that but i think the other thing is um you know tebin as we see him here is by far the most reasonable of the name shadows that we've seen so far um and if nothing else this definitely paints a more vibrant display of you know the shades of gray that exist in defiance to what Shin was referring to as like the white and black worldview, right? This is, this is going back to the letters from a renegade. Uh, this is where you see Shin kind of being like, oh, okay, this is, this is a little more complicated than the world that I grew up in. Like the world that Shin existed in was white or black. It's you're good. You're evil. I shoot you if you're evil. And in today's destiny uh, world, it's a little bit more nuanced as far as who's the actual hero, who's the villain, because the heroes are not the beacons of pure light. We aren't, we aren't the St. 14s or the, the Shin Malfers even, and even them, if you really want to get into that, even they aren't pure, you know? Right. Um, that is something I was making a point in chat about just because we have stories of them being glorious and awesome. Stories, and stories have a tendency to, to romanticize things. Correct. So Ooh, with man. that with that being said, actually, um, you want to go back to the beginning, if you will, sure, and look at the verses because I know that's what you you spent a good amount of time on and did some amazing work on those. A little bit, a little bit of work. This is actually the part of the the recording I'm actually doing. I'm having somebody read Tebin's notes, and I'm doing the recording of all the verses and the understanding. So I I get to read these multiple times all the time, it seems this last week and a half. But I want the way I want to do this is I'm going to read straight through the verses just as they are without separating them out by verse, because a lot of times they flow into each other real nicely, and then go back and kind of discuss them a little bit. So back to cages, which is chapter one, flesh and mind are but cages become unbound or remain ever unworthy. This flesh, your flesh is weak, old, handed down by priors unworthy of evolution. Had those before been more than common, your flesh would not be this flesh, their flesh, but other, new. New is never given, but claimed. To claim evolution, one must be unmade, free of cages, flesh and mind. So to start out with as far as like the analysis of this go, the verses call out a couple different things over and over. The connection between mind and body is the cage that entraps a truth. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But the very first verse calls out the separation to that it is essential to separate the mind and body, that they are remained bound currently. And if they are to remain bound, you will never be considered worthy. Granted, we don't know what that what worthy is at the end of this necessarily, because I don't think we've seen anybody who's ever successfully traversed this 
I still think it's a trap, kind of like Blue does. <laughs> Just saying that. <laughs> a trap that we may have had somebody already fall into. Anyway, that's a character that we're going to talk about later. But second verse, this flesh your flesh is weak and old. This is something that the speaker of the verse is acknowledging the Canada's body is weak. Very similar to a lot of thoughts that we have today. Um, Blue had mentioned um, Baha'i and this what is this self self mortific not mortification self mutilation uh flight flight i can't even say it fleshettes type stuff yes mortification of the flesh let's just go with that one there we go that one's the easier one uh the evolution of the body isn't perfect and more so so the survival of a line isn't thanks to survival of the fittest necessarily so you can kind of see that today in our day and age that the survival of the fittest is not something that is um, necessarily utilized by society anymore because we have a society that works together as a culture, as a community to raise up people who are less fortunate or have other issues. So just because you are the strongest does not mean that you are going to be the only one who survives. This is just kind of calling out that saying that you had a community to help hold you up in some way, shape or form, and that your body is not as strong as it could be because you are not the survivor, the sole survivor type. So basically this is why we have warning labels. Yes. So the, a big thing that is mentioned throughout these verses is the freedom of the, from the cage and the cage itself is the connection between the mind and body that your mind grows soft because of uh, the human pleasures that you take in, whether it's eating or um, even more adult themes or comfort. And it's kind of an idea that you have to learn how to balance out in real life. You have to put your body through a certain amount of stress, AKA exercise in order to keep it strong. If you don't exercise at all and don't take care of your body, it's going to grow weaker and weaker and weaker. That is a very simplified version of what these guys are talking about in this, whether this is actually hive or your or whoever gave it to us, essentially, this translation. So that is kind of like a basic breakdown of the verses there. Do you want to go ahead and throw in the understanding? Because it kind of yeah, ties into Yeah, you know what? Let's, let's do that. Because I think that will help. I think they're going to be pretty quick, to be fair. Yeah. Okay. So the understanding for chapter one is evolution is claimed only through our unmaking, which kind of ties back into the idea of the whole book to temper yourself to not necessarily have the disconnect between mind and body, but to push your body to the point where it's not reliant. Your mind is not reliant on the bodily pleasures or comforts. Blue, you had a decent, do you want to hop in on that one? You had a good. Oh yeah. 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 So like, uh, sorry, I was talking to chat. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. the evolution is claimed through our unmaking. Uh, basically the idea is that you, it, it's very, very transcendental transcendentalism. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you see this with, again, going back to the idea of the mortification of the flesh, uh, you grow beyond your, your, your mere mortal existence. You become more, uh, through the idea of self-destruction and by re- like literally redefining you, uh, the process of redefinition will often involve destruction of the prior definition. Uh, you see this actually with, uh, uh, strength training. Uh, anybody who mm-hmm. goes to the gym mm-hmm. and works out will know this. You become stronger by by punishing yourself. 
uh, which is a very gross over oversimplification of what's going on. But you but the way to actually grow muscle is by ripping it. Like that's that is what's happening when you are lifting weights is you're actually tearing your muscles. And then when they regrow, um, here's a little fun biology fact. Scar tissue is actually tougher than the original tissue. If you break yes. a bone, if you break your bone where your bone refuses and re that part of the bone is very unlikely to break again. Um if you break the same bone, it's probably going to be in a different location because the re-knitting of that material is uh, is actually reinforcing that material. Um, There's a reason why people who are in martial, martial arts punch a sandbag over and over and over. Sandbag? To... You guys got lucky. Well, we had to punch trees. Well. Ugh. But yes, yes, there. It's that, the same thing. Yeah, it's it's the idea. It's the idea of conditioning your your physicality to be to be more um and so again you know we had mentioned this with the uh the 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 legacy of your episode the understanding here is actually not dark it's actually a very you know actually pretty accurate statement uh you unmake yourself in order to grow and if you're talking about a, a spiritual term as well that is also something that you see through the idea of like, you know, we had mentioned at the very beginning of the show, like the shamanistic understanding of self-denial, um, mm-hmm. self-denial in a large, in a lot of cultures you see, especially like ancient, well, actually any culture, uh, um, ancient cultures, especially with the more predominant idea of shamanism, which is by far still present in today's world. But, but you see it a lot stronger in, uh, ancient, in the ancient world. But uh, the idea of denying the self, uh, whatever whatever particular pleasure, or you know, there there are um, the idea of scarf uh, ritual scarification is a concept that, especially in um, uh, I want to say like the the Native American cultures, you'll see this as well. Uh, African cultures will have scarifications. There's another there's a tradition, and I believe it's African cultures uh, to uh, do the ant the ant scarification where you would Mm -hmm. hold your, where you hold your hand in an ant, uh, an ant mound. And the idea is that, you know, by ignoring the punishment of the flesh, it shows the strength of your will. Uh, there are, there are even saints from the Catholic church who were known to be completely impervious to, I mean, like there, there are stories in the martyrdoms of saints from the Catholic church in which you have outright jokesters, as they're dying, they are making jokes. Um, you know, the one of the most common ones is, you know, the guy who gets uh, uh, pressed to death. He's like, you know, the entire time he's like, yeah, it's it's not heavy enough. You need to put another another brick on, you know, and, and there's there's this, right. There's this um, it's it's not beautification, but there is a a it's it's. A heroization, I guess that's a weird word, but like there is a looking on that with great honor. There's an honorification of a person who is able to do this thing and not only do it, but do it without flinching. Like, you know, it's this concept of bravery, this concept of your will is strong enough to, to allow your body to, to undergo this punishment, um, and that's that's where you kind of start seeing, you know, the especially uh, the second one. I don't, I know you're going to get there in just a second, but mm-hmm. um, the second one, you you see this this linking between the mortal body and the the spirit. Like I, I want to call it the spiritual mind, but the the mind. Right. It's 
Yeah, it's the head versus right. the body. It's it's the idea of a consciousness versus the physicality. Yes. Um, and, you know, you see this with uh, the concept of the exos, for example, the ghost in the machine argument. Um, you know, what what separates those two? There is something that is imprisoning this this spiritual mind. And I use spiritual in like the, the very broad sense, the non-physical sense. Um, the spiritual mind is being imprisoned inside this mortal flesh. And why? Why is it in prison? You know, how do you free it? And so that's where I think especially freedom is, is aptly named freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And freedom is the verses in freedom really are just kind of an expansion on the, the first chapter. They talk about the separation of the two, that the mind has grown complacent because the flesh is there. The mind is softened because the flesh is there. If you... And you can kind of see this, and I'm. this is going to be kind of a psychological dive a little bit further into your realm, Blue, but the idea of people who are um, solely intellectual beings who do not care about anything of the flesh. Now, granted, they do care because you have a body, but the people who are pushed beyond that and just are just a brain, I'm, and ironically, the person who comes to mind, uh, rest his soul, is Stephen Hawking, who... His mind was everything to him because he obviously did not have the physicality to be able to do a lot of things that other people were able to do. So his entire life's work was devoted to developing his mind and expanding his understanding. In some respects, he is further down this road, according to chapter one and chapter two, than say, for instance, Tevin, if Tevin is not obviously in the same boat as Stephen Hawking, which we don't technically know. I imagine he is not going through crucible on a scooter and thorning everybody, even though that is a really funny thought. Now. Yeah. I, I, when you're saying this, this makes me think of, there was a, there was a movie that was back in 2014 um, called transcendence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, and there was a, there was a slew of these movies, but this is one, this is one that like actually comes to mind. I have, I actually, I actually have not seen this one. I keep intending to go watch it, but I haven't gotten around to seeing it. But the entire concept is exactly kind of what you're talking about in regards to Stephen Hawking is the entire Mm -hmm. basis of the idea was, you know, the transcendence of the brain into a digitization of that. Uh, So you continue existence even after the body has failed you. Um, You know, you see that, Definitely with with Hawking, you see that with, I mean, even Tesla, you know, Einstein, all all major, major thinkers will have a period in which they at least comment on that, that concept, like, because it's, it's a natural, it's a natural thing for humans to question. I mean, that is, that is the crux, the, the double edged sword of mortality is and that's that's not i mean that's as much psychological as it is philosophical is that you know we for better or worse are here just for a period of time we're not here forever and you know that that begs the question of like you know we we have jokes about midlife crises and stuff like that and that's where that kind of that from a psychological standpoint that's where that comes from is that's often ascribed to the person's um uh, what's usually referred to as the realization of your mortality. Um, and that really is this kind of concept that you are not going to be here as, you know, like you're not going to be here for as long as you think. Um, right. And within the realm of destiny, though, like it's it's even weirder because you see this 
you see this transcendence, this transcendence concept coming about from a sect of individuals who are not mortal. Um, you know, for for pretty much all intents and purposes, the guardians are not within a mortal flesh. Um, so when they when they talk about the freedom of like, comp- I I always I read freedom more about uh, social complacency than necessarily. F- uh, physical complacency. Because... I would even say physical complacency because the guardians do they do have sensation, right? Well, and that's fair. That is fair, right? That I I totally agree. That I just I from the understanding concept of mortal flesh as a prison. Um, mm. You know, I I kind of like, but that's not mortal flesh for a guardian. I I see like um, right the constant the. Uh, I, I see it more as an intellectual, the danger complacency, the the danger of uh, dulling your awareness of the truth because you don't question things. You just accept it right. as it as it and, gives. And there's a direct line in there um, that basically talks about if you are not able to be creative because you are um, in the familiarity or familiar with everything around you, if you're in a routine and you're not being creative and pushing outside your boundaries that you're, you're basically made to decay, that you are not going to be able to walk this path. Uh, the other one that I thought was kind of interesting is uh, verse four here. Those only those born only to live to be replaced cannot see eternity, nor are they welcome here. That Does that sound like, the, like just people who are, what is it called, celibate? Like you have to kind of not be enthralled with that, I guess? Um because guardians don't have that I, so this well we this, don't if, we to be fair we don't know that right also um, this is if this is a transfer from the hive because that, that would be well yeah but then but yeah and see that's that gets and dangerous too because mm-hmm. we don't know the changes we don't know the changes that the hive underwent from the krill and right the krill had a different view of offspring as well um i actually read that as those so you're talking about verse four, right? Those who are born mm-hmm. only to be replaced. Um, again, going back to, I read this actual this chapter as social complacency and intellectual complacency. I was actually, I, I see where you're coming. I actually see what you're saying. I did not read it that way. I read mm-hmm. it as people who are okay just going through life day to day. They aren't, they aren't. Right. Um, the people who, uh, God, it's, it's really, I, um, people who live with no awareness of like why they do something, they just do things by, uh, it's just rote habit, habitual create or habitual existence like that, that for, for a lot of intellectuals is a very big, um, slap in the face of the entire beauty of existence is like, you don't even ask why you're doing stuff. You just do it like that, that to an intellectual is very, um, insulting is a strong word it's not insulting but it it's just it's wasteful um mm-hmm. because you have the ability to question and challenge everything before you and you're just going with the flow you know it's it's just that that i again that that whole um that whole question things look for the truth look push push against the the boundaries of what is the constraints you know, verse two talks about the constraints of comfortability, um, stunted imagination. Again, it's right. kind of I, I kind of read this again as more of like an intellectual complacency. Um, 
and it's kind of the Assassin's Creed thing, you know, everything's permitted, question everything, you know, all that concept. And that's that's where you get the intellectual uh, rigor of where we see the shadows kind of pushing against this internal decree that the Vanguard has about censorship. Censorship is is immensely uh, is insulting to people who are very, uh, very focused on intellectualism uh, because censorship is a, is a is an active uh, deterrent to the entire concept of what an intellectual wants to do. An intellectual or a, a, a you know a student, a lifelong student or whatever, um, is is someone who who wants to um, to continue growing, right, in their brain, in mm-hmm. their mind. Uh, so a complacency in the mind, it, it's it's both terrifying and viewed as wasteful because complacency that's the danger of complacency is it can happen and you won't be aware of it because you're so complete it's comfort that's the dangers of comfort that's where again we go back to the the self-denial concept the reason why i go back to it being tied to the physical body though is literally the verse one the mind is complacent the flesh has made it so it's the 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 dopamine effect yep. the fact it's that you the drug, are the drug of physical yes. existence yep. right exactly and that and again you know to kind of touch back to real real world that's a that's a pretty that's a very common uh philosophical uh axiom is that you know the 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 complacency of the brain is due to the comfort of the flesh um mm-hmm. you know be it it it, it <sighs> I don't want to go down that too far, but again, it's the idea that your body, your body shapes your reality and, and, and more than just, you know, in just, it, it does, but it also, it also teaches you what is comfortable, what's not comfortable. Uh, right. Uh, mental, mental rigor is not comfortable by its, by its nature. Um, and so if you live a life of hedonism, if you lead a life that is dedicated to finding the comfort in existence, you're going to probably not be the person who is challenging social norms, is challenging the status quo, because that's not comfortable. I mean, it, it all comes back to that. It, I mean, it keeps coming back to that. Make it a habit to be uncomfortable and you're going to find that you're able to push the limits more easily because you're Mm -hmm. used to that discomfort. You're used to not being comfortable. And so the idea of stepping out of a comfort zone is not a it's not it's not there because you don't have a comfort zone by your own habitual creation. Sorry, that's that's no, you're good. That's that's a very powerful tangent because in philosophy, like I said, in philosophy, that's a very very big underlying tone in you know pick your philosopher they're going to talk about this right 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 so kind of the summary which is the understanding that they wrote at the bottom of it is mortal flesh is a prison that makes liars of our of our beautiful caged minds uh emphasis being on the mind being the priority and that the mortal flesh is kind of the doling agent of it which takes us to self, which is the third chapter. And self is self is the self-reflection chapter. It is literally you have to know thyself within it. You have to understand who you are. When you are stripped away from everything that is identity, um, so, social, society-based identity and everything else, who are you at your core? 
And that is kind of the one of the other themes that are going on here. First theme is the separation between mind and body, the uncaging, essentially. In this area, it is to have a true understanding of who you are. Know who you are, and it's fine to lie to the world. That is part of verse 5. Verse 5, through the pieces of a life, live divine your truth, but do not lie mm-hmm. to the world if one must, but never to yourself. So you can you can put on a quote-unquote mask and lie to the world as long as you internally know who you are, that you don't become the mask that you show the world, that you are true to yourself, which is kind of a, I mean, this one, as far as chapters go, is a very, I don't feel it is as um, evil sounding or self-deprecating sounding. No, this is, this is, this is a paraphrasing of the Oracle of Delphi is what this is. Yeah, it really is. Um, which it's again, <clears throat> just to kind of interject there again, this oh. is, this is a very, very basic tenet in intellectualism. Um, because, and I, I know you kind of said this too, but it, it's again to kind of to double down on that. It's the knowing yourself in honest ways. Like this, mm-hmm. this is something that you, when you do a self-examination, you know, um, self-examinations, a lot of people don't it, it it again goes back to comfort it's not comfortable to be honest with your flaws it's not comfortable to look at yourself and be you know this is not my this i'm not perfect and you have to be okay with the fact that you're not perfect you have to understand you have to be comfortable with the fact that you don't know everything you know the first step to learning is understanding that you don't know that is how you that's how you begin the path of education is that you you have to admit that you don't know something. Um, right. And and I love verse five, too. And I love your translation of it. Know who you are. It's fine to lie to the world, but you can't hide from yourself. Um, I would argue that you can hide from yourself, but that's actually the whole point of this. This particular thing is like you shouldn't hide from yourself. Right. If you're going to if you're going to evolve and that goes back to what I, I love your I love your translations on these, by the way, because your verse three translation is exactly on point. You won't you won't survive what is to come if you don't understand yourself. And this calls back to, you know, what we've been talking about with the Awoken with Mara Sav. You know, Mara is a hundred percent aware of her own failings. And because of that, she's able to calculate into those. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's because of those those completely blunt calculations that you can you can do amazing feats because you're aware of what's going on. You 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 don't have this this unreasonable expectation. You're not setting yourself up for failure because you you understand where you're gonna trip. Right. Um, and there's other characters in Destiny that not just Mara, not just the Shadows that kind of try to follow these these precepts per se, but Shen even mentions it because mm-hmm. he talks about in the Renegade book about um, the face the face that he presents as well as the understanding of what he's learned through the years and who he is now and trying to figure out who he is to be. He's this book, this chapter is actually one of my favorites as far as like, could I actually view this as something I would follow myself or at least try to follow myself? Oh, for sure. For certain. For certain. Which takes us to four and we are almost halfway there because this book is crazy with a lot of information. <laughs> so, oh, we didn't go over the understanding. 
Uh, yeah. Understanding is really easy. Know thyself in honest oh, ways sorry. and falter yeah, in the yeah. light of your true self. Super easy for that's for three. Super easy understanding. It's basically what Blue and I have been talking about this whole time. But going to Oracle, four, Oracle of Delphi. Know yourself. Yes. Know or know yep. thyself. Know thyself. Period. And then four, we get into the some of the scarier stuff in my mind. Um, seek the whispers; they are faint, but they are calling. Not all bones, not all bone carries the sound of secret truth. Most are fragile, hollow things meant only to carry the weight of wasted lives. And it keeps I love going your on. Question. I love your question on this one. You're like, wait, 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 wait. What? More than yeah. one? <laughs> yeah. Because that first one, um, it's just like, <laughs> just, wait I a second. It. We have the Ahamkara bones, and now we have the Books of Sorrow, or the, the bones from the hive that whisper. Because we have the little, yeah. we knew the, that that happened because of the one that Eris had inside of her little orb. Mm-hmm. Which kind of so, goes back to the the whole debate about worms and ahamkara, right? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. I mean, and we see that with uh, uh, what's the what's the sniper uh, whisper? whisper? Yeah, because that's that's a part of uh, of uh, Zol. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like it's like eh, eh, you know, like again, you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense that there is technically quote unquote more than one type of bone, uh, you know, right? I don't know. And What's interesting is that second verse is that there's a warning that not all bones will speak sacred truth. Now, granted, right. sacred truth is pretty subjective, in my opinion. <laughs> what? No, that couldn't be I possible mean, at all. Oh, my gosh. That Some just to, tell the truth. It was verse five. <laughs> just <Yeah. laughs> don't worry about what they're trying to tell you. Just just listen. They're not going to. Right? Oh, my God. This is. All I wanted this all is I where the do, madness starts. All I wanted to do when I read this this particular chapter was just play Admiral Akbar the entire time. It's a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> I'm like I'm like, oh my god. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the fact that some bones carry the weight of wasted lives. So even the what's interesting is they're calling out that not all bones that whisper are of worthy beings or were prior worthy beings and in that line, it's like, okay. I mean, that calls back to uh, the Books of Sorrow. I will right. trap them. They steal our gods. I'll trap them in cages. Yeah. But, I mean, this is just the beginning of the crazy because we're going we're gonna to keep going down this road and it's going to keep getting crazier and more contradictory as we go because they, they want you to listen, but they don't want you to believe the lies of the ones that are not really sacred truth ones, but they don't tell you which ones they are. Well, and I think to be to go back real quick and mm-hmm. can I pull in the understanding from book three or chapter three, um, mm-hmm. the understanding here is that on the path of the hushed tones, the cutting word will guide your unmaking. Um, right. And so this is where what we had just gotten that that conversation we just had about know thyself, you know, it's basically listen to the whispers. But don't lose the knowledge of yourself, that honest assessment of yourself, because that honest assessment, that knowledge is going to allow you to penetrate the lies and reveal the truths that are beneath them. Um, you know, it's it's the idea of like, um, 
Okay, man. I, I actually a big shout out. Actually, this is kind of a weird time to do it, but a big shout out to Rexy because I was listening to his analysis of Bioshock, and this is actually something that's in line with this particular piece right here. Is the mm-hmm. concept of individualism, uh, the individual, like the entire concept of uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged being the input, like in one of the big influencers of Bioshock one uh, and, you know, Ryan's character looking at like your, your, your good is what is good for you. It's not necessarily right. a social, it, like a social society or society. Well, wow. That was a weird social one. contract. Yeah. It, it's not really a social contract, but like it's anti-social contract. Like society mm-hmm. should not impose upon you. What is good is the, is the concept right. there. Um, and so here, if you look at your concept of your knowledge, your truth, your sacred truth, like you, what you are, like the knowledge of yourself that is right. the sacred truth that you should hold to, hold fast to, and then let the words, let the let the whispers flow over you, and and dive into that. Like accept accept reality or accept the reality of what the whispers are are doing, but don't lose yourself. Become right. you know I I keep I kind of going back to this. It's become a final shape. Let let the let the ebb and flow of the whispers smooth off the edges of of your body and until your brain your mind is all that's left and like unmake you via the cut word but even if oh, yeah. you can hear Which, the whispers yeah it's yeah you may not be able to share yeah. its purpose <laughs> I love, I you love may that, not like, even be worthy and but you know, well and i think i think that also is where you may not be worthy i think comes back to the whole thing of Hold on to your knowledge. Hold on to yourself mm-hmm. because this is a trial, right? This is this is the crucible, if you will, of what's mm-hmm. going on. And I mean crucible in the sense of what an actual crucible is. This is the burning away of the impurities. Right. The problem is, is like sometimes you toss stuff in a crucible and the whole thing burns away. You know, it, it's it it's a you know you don't know what's going to happen, and and that is where you kind of start getting this darker tone of the idea. Right. This is where Which we you're... get more clarification in the next chapter. Right. Yes. On this whole exactly. Thing. You definitely get purpose. Purpose is definitely entering into the dark realms of the whispers. Right. So What's, there are. Uh, min- sorry, real quick. Go for it. The the transition to purpose is the last word. The last verse here is the cutting word is a doorway. The first syllable of hated salvation, mm-hmm. and then we get into purpose. Which talks about how, and I'm just going to go through the understanding a little bit first on this one, which is lose yourself not in the whispers, whispers words, but in their purpose. So it's the, the whispers are there to guide you, but you have to see past the, the substance of what the whispers are telling you to see the purpose behind the whispers, which is kind of the basic overarching thing for this chapter. Um, the first verse talks about how there are many, a legion of liars and demons set to challenge your resolve. Hear the words, but know they question your truth. The journey forth is not direct, but a shifting maze meant to discard the word unworthy. So it continues on and on and on saying that you're going to have these whispers happen. We have the whispers happen with the, the whisper, um, the, the sniper rifle. Can you see the purpose behind the whispers instead of just what they're telling you? 
is kind of where this one is going. It's a, in verse six, it says to follow blindly is to sacrifice oneself to the abyss, becoming not one, but one of the many, another lost soul. I love that line. It's probably my favorite line in this whole book because it's the, well, and I don't love, become I love verse four sheep. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, salvation does not want you. Evolution does not care. <laughs> yeah. You, that sounds about right. For you. That cold blooded, like I'm just, just going to say it how it I is. I love it. I just love it. I read that and I was like, I think that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The gosh. Yeah. The, what was it? Verse six that I said about right, the, yeah. talking about. You. Don't become a sheep. Right. Don't be a sheep. Think for yourself. Know your truth. Think for yourself. Don't get comfortable. Don't just go with what everybody says. Decide for yourself what is your truth. Which, if we're going to tie it back to real life, or at least a real life, um, I'm losing the word for it right now, a relationship to something similar. Buddhism is very similar to that in the fact that they don't, they're not trying to teach you what to believe. They want you to think about it. They want you to decide for yourself what you believe, which is why a lot of Buddhism math meshes up with a lot of other religions, because your your path that you follow may not be exactly the same as another person, quote unquote, in the faith of Buddhism, but it's your true path versus their true path. I may have done a few research papers on Buddhism in college that came in handy with this book. Right. Anyway. And this <clears throat> this goes back to, in a way, the bargain, uh, which is mm. bu- uh, book nine of the Books of Sorrow, or mm-hmm. chapter chapter nine, verse nine, verse one, verse nine, verse one nine. <laughs> so, uh, this is where uh, the the siblings stood before the worm gods, and basically the the bargain was that they must obey their nature forever. Yes, um, and you know, again, it's it's again egocentricism obey your nature evolve for yourself which honestly if you really want to split hairs is actually counterproductive to the concept of evolution but we're not going to get into that um right this is a this is a psychological evolution more than a, a biological evolution though so right there is one more thing i want to mention about this book or this chapter in particular is back to verse five which is kind of fun it reminds me a lot of tolan so verse five <laughs> says the whispers are your guide and your undoing mark their words but do not follow blind i replayed the opening mission into the dreaming city recently and one of them is th- one of the lines tolan says is the line about virgil which I, still throws <laughs> me every time it's like how does tolan know about virgil but whatever yes. well i mean uh, it wouldn't be the first time we have ancient pre-golden right. age texts Nezirak. just makes me roll my eye yeah i know but virgil is an actual one Nezirak is whatever <laughs> I, love, I love how you're like no no but uh, i mean he zavala has sun Tzu, so right i know it's just it makes my head hurt a little bit <laughs> each time but tolan mentions we're following him blindly a friendly voice in the dark like this part right here it's like don't follow blind that's that's literally what Tolan tells us. And I'm getting hate mail right now via DM because somebody's a little angry at me for making that point and tying Tolan to this because I kind of think Tolan followed the road of sorrow, even if oh. it was on accident. I don't think it was on accident. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, the understanding here is just really a repeated warning. 
of number four uh, in not so many words. Uh, it's lo- lose yourself not in the whispers' words, but in their purpose. Uh, and I mean, again, yep. know yourself, don't follow blind. Uh, yep. You know, it's again the glorification and deification of the concept of individualism, uh, the understanding of yourself above the other, uh, which. I can go on and on for that one if you want, but let's not. Yes. Um, you want to talk about go to focus? Focus. Let's focus Fo- on focus. Focus is also the funny. Oh my god! Really? <laughs> you had to do like the nerdy. Like <laughs> I'm excited to keep going. <laughs> Did you like my joke? Um, uh... Oh my gosh! It is getting late. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so the under the basic understanding for focus is let go of all that is to come to linger here on the promise of rewards yet earned. You will see lost. Never to return. Very this. poetic. I love this. Very. Um, so verse one, once the word has cut its meaning upon the very essence of you, there will come an understanding of potential. Once you see something, you cannot unsee it. <laughs> once you learn something, you can't unlearn it. When imagined, your potential will infect and spread. Or if you can imagine your greatness, it will spread. There's also a warning earlier about how you can spread the wrong thing. <laughs> And you can infect the wrong, the wrong thing to people. I mean, it's so many contradictories throughout the book. With not like redcon contradictories, more of there's. It's a very very narrow path to walk to do this. And there's even a point where it says the path will change. It's a it's a winding maze that is constantly changing. So you have to always be focused. And I don't actually don't even. I don't think it's in this part in this chapter per se. Let's see here. What else? It says to basically put all your effort in it. Never give less than your best. If you get cocky, (laughs) it won't end well. So that is for verse four. Do not allow yourself to self the confidence of all your hope to of all you hope to achieve. So there you have to remain humble. And here's where I kind of feel that Rezel may have fallen a little bit. Granted, we don't know exactly where he fell or what his downfall was besides the whispers that he heard from um, Zeol, but it's the don't be overconfident in your ability to go back. You have to be or to push forward. You have to be vigilant. You have to be present. If you dwell on that which is beyond your grasping, you will lose sight of the whisper's purpose. If you see too much into the future or think too much into the future or dread the future, anything, you will cause yourself harm in so much as you will either paralyze yourself, you will overestimate something, underestimate something, you will cause yourself problems because you are not remaining present. And your end will be an end and nothing more. Basically, if you look too far ahead, you're just going to be the end of your line, essentially. You're going to be not in push forward in the evolution maintain your truth from first cut to last embrace or all you will achieve shall be the echoes of your scream against eternity i love that line it is very blunt in the fact that if you do not remain true you're just going to be a voice yelling in the wind lost (laughs) like toland (laughs) like like 95 percent of people on twitter um Uh (laughs) so (laughs) 
The other, the other thing, the other thing that this reminds me of is one of my, one of the, one of the thing, I guess really quick, like this reminds me actually of something my grandfather used to tell me. Um, and this is the idea that if you look, so especially like if you look too far ahead, uh, you'll Mm -hmm. fail. Um, if you, and green, I know you've probably have done this, but for anyone who hasn't done this, if you can go out and find like train tracks and try to walk on the train track. Um, oh yeah. If you and there's there's the reason I say this is there's a point at which you can't you can't look at your own feet. If you look at your own feet, you're going to fall off the rail. You have to look up. Like you have to look at at the coming of what is ahead. And that's actually the best way to find balance. And but if you look too far ahead, you're going to fall like you'll fall as well because you can't see where you're stepping. So there's this there's this like very fine line. It's not like it's not like a super fine line, but there's a very fine balancing point of where you need to focus your gaze to stay on track, literally stay on the track. Um, And my grandfather would always use that as an example of like, look ahead, but don't 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 ignore where you've come from or where you are, but you have to, you do have to look at like your next step. Um, now the contrast here is that this is almost more of a focus on the present, uh, be aware of the past and future, but don't dwell on them. Uh, so it's more of the immediate, um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic too, or an interesting conflict here, because this entire thing is about the unmaking, the the denial of pleasure, the de- denial of comfort, and a lot of times when you see the idea of focusing on the present, it's live in the moment, you know, exist in the moment, enjoy the moment, don't worry about the consequences, enjoy the moment, well, and that's well, not. Oh, sorry, go for I've, it. I would actually say, depending on what what you're looking at for that because being present doesn't necessarily mean um just enjoy the moment it is the see the moment for what it is right no yeah and that's where i was i was just saying like when you usually when you hear live in the moment that's not like Mm -hmm. it's not something that's like hey don't enjoy this but live in the like that's not usually the the dynamic that goes along with that statement so i i like the the kind of the the um uh, the dynamic that's going on, like it's kind of a, it's an interesting thing. I and I agree. I like I like the seventh one. I like that quote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So it leads us to chapter seven, which is joining. Only through a joining of the known and unknown can your path be made new. So we've talked about being present. <laughs> we've talked about being focused. Now we have to take the step from where we are now to where we are going to be where what is known to the unknown joint and this one scares the crap out of me as far as like how dark it gets it, but it sure. makes it makes sense oh, i mean so so the the thing is is here again it's doubling down on the idea of mortification of the flesh uh, it's doubling down on the self-denial. It's doubling down on the avoidance of comfort. You know, the 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 um, the refusal Separation. to to allow complacency to rule, uh, mm-hmm. to to dull the to dull the pain of the truth. Um, and and the the understanding really is talking about don't rush the process. Um, you are being teased right. apart. You are being teased apart. You are being slowly ripped apart to be remade into something more. And that mean, I mean, that's going, and the entire thing here is that's going to be painful. That is, that is not a pleasant experience. 
but it is a necessary experience. And this is part of the crucible that's filtering out the unworthy from the worthy. Um, right. That process cannot be rushed. It should not be rushed because by rushing it, you will make a less than perfect result. So you have to endure the pain for as long as it takes to complete the transformation. Um, you know, to be to be really uh, blunt about it, the the same thing can be said for the the concept of the metamorphosis of a butterfly, right? I mean, if right. you if you understand the actual what actually happens inside that cocoon, it's not a beautiful process. I mean, the the caterpillar makes the cocoon, and then the entire caterpillar is is literally liquefied and then remade. I mean, it's it's not a pleasant process, but the end result is something of of you know arguably very great beauty. And I and that's kind of the the idea here is again going back to that whole concept of nature is not kind. Nature is not a gentle, loving, you know, cushy thing. It's it's rough. It's it's bloodthirsty in a lot of senses. Um, and that's the survival of the fittest concept going on. Uh, right. So I mean, I I I definitely see where the the darkness is in it because it definitely does like separate the verse two, which I know you're probably going to get onto. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the social um, psychological perspective of what this chapter represents, it is almost in some ways less gruesome, even if it is more yes terrible in the end. But the like the physical mm-hmm. images that this chapter in particular. Um, inflicts upon your brain is like ah well and i and i i think again that goes back to you have to accept the fact that this is the truth of reality right and i because that's like the ending right it's like this pain is not going anywhere like this is this is gonna be here like this is gonna be here for a while if you read this as a literal thing that is happening though, right. as the oh, whispers yeah. grow, madness threatens the edge of your sanity. So you were fighting to remain sane, mm-hmm. yet the whispers are becoming more and more, which is the first one. And how the whispers are becoming more and more <laughs> growing, that's a whole nother thing. Then verse two says, the flaying comes not by blade, but through the joining of flesh and bone, which sounds to me a lot like they are like and like i don't know threading the shards into themselves or like saying the joining of the flesh and bone because oh you mean kind of like putting an eye in the center of your forehead oh god please let's not get to eris on that one that's i mean to be fair I, yeah I joining, know. joining I know. a flesh and bone she's got another bone that she carries around with her right like i mean flashlight. i mean to be but I mean, to be there, that's that's the thing is like this is this is talking about physical metamorphosis as much as it's talking about right. psychological metamorphosis. Um, right. Wicket actually brings up the aesthetics and of the characters, too. Right. You know, like when you look at when you look at the aesthetics of the hive as a NPC character in game, you see this. You see a lot of the piercings, a lot of the nail, like the the penetration of different objects through the the chitin on their armor um the Mm -hmm. wizards the wizards will have their wings often uh pierced with different uh gauge rings and and different objects um if you look at uh the 
the items even that we get from the hive. A lot of it's talking about the flaying of skin, the the destruction of bone, you know, all this. Right. It's it's very, very medieval torture-esque type concept as, you know, self-flagellation and that type of concept. Um, the entire concept of even the krill were, were all about the, the morphs taken upon them. There was three chosen morphs, you know, mother, knight, or king. That that is again the the whole concept of the evolution of for like it's not a forced evolution it is a forced evolution but it's not like in this concept it's not a forced evolution it's a it's an evolution that you initiate that you introduce the catalyst and then it has to occur like you can't force it to happen faster it just you know it takes time and that is again going back to the previous chapters in which we were talking about holding on to you your sense of self your sense mm-hmm. of truth your nature your true nature you know it's because of that that core strength of that that uh, tenacity of the self that you can endure this pain both physical and spiritual again mortification of the flesh it's all about building your spiritual resilience uh, and, and, or mental resilience, I guess, whatever, whatever word you want to use there. Um, that's, that's the entire thing is ignoring the current pain. I mean, in green, you guys, you were talking about, uh, Buddhism, you know, and Mm -hmm. that is a very common thing with a lot of the, the Eastern intellectual, uh, myth or not mythologies, but theologies or ways Mm -hmm. of life, uh, philosophies, um, is ignoring the trappings of the physical body. Uh, you see that a lot with Buddhists. You see that a lot with any of the in any of the highly intellectual like focused uh, philosophies. Is the people who can go for long stints of perp- or long stints of time without giving into the need to eat, the need to drink, um, the need to sleep. You know, the, this is this is not something that is by any means comfortable. Um, but what I think the difference here is that you're actually seeing. What would normally be a self self mortification or self denial of a necessary component for existence in the terms of like food or drink, we're seeing here a actual self. Um, I hesitate to call it this, but it is a degree of self harm. Uh, you see a a potential here of introducing something that will actually deform your your physical body i mean but the at entire, the same time you're trying to make it right but they're also warning not to force it right to. yeah and 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 the other thing here too that i i kind of get and it doesn't ever actually say it but i also get the sense that this should not be done for enjoyment like this is not talking about masochism this is not talking from a sadistic point of view like this is talking about like it, there there's there is a heavy difference here like this is not a masochistic process this is something that is a necessary process in order to purify the mortal flesh into the eternal mind i don't know if that makes sense mm-hmm. which... which which actually brings us to secrets <laughs> right <laughs> and this is where my written analysis has kind of ended so this is going to be analysis on the fly as we go a little bit but secrets the whispers hear you some say they always have why this is where so, this is where it's a trap comes in because again i just i i couldn't read i can't read this one and i think it's the next one. Oh no 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 it's this also- one it's this one this one is like 
I just like I get like I get by the time you get to verse seven, I get where they're going with it. But like mm-hmm. the the entire thing here is you're teaching you're teaching the whispers, the whisperers. Um, no, yeah, yeah, the whispers. Sorry, you're you're teaching the whispers. And if you're lucky and if you're strong enough, you will be around after you're done teaching the whispers. Right. Like, even though like, you're not supposed to listen to the whispers words per se, but follow their purpose and focus, but not also at the same at back and forth every single right, one. Right. And it's like, so like, yeah, the whispers hear you, uh, all you have learned from the quiet words pales to the secrets you scream as your cages start to bend as the old you starts to break the whispers, listen, the whispers learn. Um, goes on to, uh, in your pain, the whispers find their answers to your worth. When mm-hmm. you're, when the flesh is gone and only bone remains, there will be no secrets left to scream. So, right. and the, the ultimate understanding here is no pain that it may teach you all you never imagined possible. So here's, here's where the razor thin line and the danger, I mean, if it wasn't already obvious, the the trap kind of exists. Because what that basically means is that by the process of unmaking, you are not actually furthering your evolution. You're furthering the evolution of the whispers. And you're you're seeing the unmaking as paving the way for these whispers to grow and to learn. And your pain is teaching them that. But... But there is a slim chance that in teaching the whispers, you can learn something from the whispers and you have a small chance to also transcend. Right. But it's probably not going to happen is what I can. It's kind of like the undertone that I get in this is like, yeah, it's not going to probably happen. It's like, like, are you going to be the Buddhist? Are you going to be the Buddha at the end of all of this? And ultimately, this is also where I get the idea that your like the the comment from uh not not at the end of this but uh embrace like the Mm -hmm. the idea of like your is not actually the end goal i see this being the underlying point of your was actually probably an experiment like i the more i read this particular like translation um and this particular like presentation of your and the shadows the more i car- i start seeing your as a as a an experiment by zior to understand the guardians we see that with the wizards with uh ariana three with uh mm-hmm. um the omar crystals. yeah omar oh, where oh, she yeah, was yeah. like she she's literally flaying the light from him like mm-hmm. which is you want to talk about would, a grotesque scene to picture in your head. Right. Um, I would argue that this, like every dredgen that or every person that follows down the road of sorrow is an experiment in one shape or form. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I, I completely agree. I think that this is a Trojan horse of all kind of, of nothing mm-hmm. else. Um, now that being said, I also see the shadows even though they are willingly walking into this Trojan horse of a vi- like this, this I, I also see the weapons of sorrow as kind of like a Trojan horse against the guardians, but that, that's a whole different theory. Um, I, but I see this also as being the grounds upon which I had mentioned the redemption story. I see this possibly as being the point where we can see a redemption here. Like right. one of these shadows could technically redeem it i mean ultimately that it could be the crux of how we get around this particular trap mm-hmm. um but i think that's getting ahead of ourselves just a little, a little bit secrets is 
interesting. It is the it is the transition to Nirvana through the absolute pain of that transition, like the understanding of the pain as well as yourself and everything else through it, which leads us to embrace, which embrace is number nine. The understanding is do not linger on the coming embrace. Your unmaking is yours alone, a solitary journey devoid of peace, which is very sad Um, because this road is not, if you were going to travel this road, it is not going to be pleasant. And they, they literally say it is not going to be pleasant. And that is part of it. And you know that going in because it's evolution is messy period. And in some ways as, as alluring as the idea of evolving is and how we always try to push ourselves to evolve as people in and of ourselves, there is that line where how much pain are you willing to suffer or how much pain are you really willing to put yourself through to evolve into your best self? How much, how much time, how much weight are you going to put on a freaking bench press and binge until you are strong enough or stronger and continue to get stronger. Your body, ironically enough, your body will eventually max out. There, there is a limit to the physical body. This is pushing past that physical limit. And so we have verse one, where as the old self falls away, there will only be suffering. None can sustain in the face absolution, yet evolution demands sacrifice. Pain must be accepted as the new constant. Or pain will pain will be the all of you. As the white noise of your screams drown the whispers, you will feel alone. You are alone. Is this eternity or oblivion? You will see yourself outside yourself, and you will long to embrace this new evolution, a beacon on the far end of lost hope. Yet you will know, through the pain, through the fear, there is no longer a you that was, only what comes next, and all the pain to follow. So when you finally separate the mind from the body and you have the joining of the bone to like the bone to the flesh where the bone takes over the flesh, the amount of pain is just going to be constant, which begs the question, Bloom, is this an actual evolution? Will you continue to evolve through the pain? Can you adapt at that point? I mean, that's that's the question of existence, isn't it? Right. Is I mean, and again, that goes back to way back at the beginning of this book. Is, and I know we're we're running long on time, and we did warn you, by the way. Right. Um, but that that is the crux of what the truth is, both psychologically and physically. That type of truth is very painful to realize. Is that ultimately at the end of everything? Is it is it evolution or is it oblivion? Is the unmaking worth it? You know, I mean, that's that's the thing is like I, I keep I read this this book in a number of different ways, um, depending on, you know, what what particular hat I'm wearing at the moment, um, because there's a lot of truth in it to be applied in real life. I mean, there's there's a lot of truth in this that that reflects a lot of questions that we have in reality. But then game, there's also, you know, there's questions as far as like, you know, where where is this in regards to like. Toland, you know, Toland is stuck in this world of of a of a uh, mental or spiritual existence that has no body, who is plagued by pain and confusion and madness and whispers and all this stuff. And you know, is that 
is that ultimately the goal here? Is that ultimately, do they want to, is the process here a trap to reduce the Guardians to a, a talking orb of light energy? Which, or is the goal what happened with Yor? Which, I mean, is the goal to pit Guardian against Guardian? You know, I mean, what is what is the goal of this entire thing? And I think that's where we also have to question, we have to bring back into question, you know, um, Tebin's notes is what I'm getting at, because that's really where they end as well, is like, what is going, like, what is going on? Like, is this, is this road worth traveling? And ultimately, I think, you know, ultimately Tevin seemed, or Tebin and Orsa have, mm-hmm. obviously, obviously think it is, uh, because that's where we, you know, where we get this information from. But the question that they even asked too is like, you know, the effect of your like that 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 corruption, that damnation that your experienced, was that the end? Or was that just a byproduct of something else? And if that is a byproduct of this this ancient arms race, which is kind of a theory that I also have in regards to Thorn and the last word, um mm-hmm. I think that there is a an overarching conflict going on with that particular story as well in which guardians are ultimately just pawns. Like I, I don't, I don't really, I haven't really formulated anything like out of that, but the way the last word has acted in destiny two is it's very interesting um, to say the least that it's jumping from guardian to guardian, uh, which I just find that kind of intriguing. Um, It's like the, the random sword in the stone that shows up. Right. Nope. Yep. And it's been referred to as a sword, by the way, mm-hmm. which bugs mm-hmm. me. And I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole because that's a that's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous path for me to go down because there's a right. lot of implications on that as well. Like they're they're oh my god, they're I've yeah, I've tried to put that anyways. Um like there, so there's here, there's a bigger there's a bigger debate going on right about what what is the purpose of this path right and and you're you're I love that that verse five is this eternity or is this oblivion like and ultimately also even more importantly is there a difference right there and at that point if you were not if you were just of mind does it matter well okay all right all right okay I'm sorry I'm gonna have to go down this tangent just a little bit so go for it. So the question ultimately goes back way, way back to the beginning of Destiny, right? Where do Guardians come from? Where do the ghosts and the light that they use come from? Are, are, you, are, are you as a Guardian embodying a body? Are, is, is, the, is the spirit, the mind that is within the body of the mm-hmm. Guardian... Is that the mm-hmm. same mind spirit that was in that body prior to that guardian being resurrected? Because there's a number of different possibilities there. If it isn't, that explains why you can't, as a guardian, remember your past life. That's right. what explains why you are completely different from your past life. However, there is a problem in the sense that the resurrection process of the guardian, the classification of that guardian, is described as a reflection of that particular individual's paradigm or worldview of how to manifest and imbue the light and acquire information. Uh, You have the three main classifications where you have a warlock, a titan, or a hunter. Depending on what Mm -hmm. way you interact with the world and which way you best manifest the powers that are within you via the light, 
that determines your classification. Uh, within those classifications, each one has the subclass, which we are all familiar with, and that's just man. That's just that's just basically flavoring, really. That's just how you manifest that particular manifest or that particular uh, uh, spectrum of the light. Um, but the the question really goes back to you know here, especially the bigger question is when we see Toland. When we see Toland, he is a ball of light. Is that what an actual guardian is? And that we are imbued within a, a physical body because then that puts into conversation, you know, like the entire Orphic egg theory of the traveler. Like there's there's a okay. huge, huge pot potential to unravel a ball of yarn here because you can also argue that the traveler is a repository of energies from different civilizations and that we are just continued continually, you know, resurrected via um, a Noah's Ark-esque type concept. Like there's there's a lot of different tangents that this can go down, and this this book of unmaking because of the the continued focus on the segregation between physical and spiritual, or physical and mental, whatever you want to, however you want to gauge that dyad. Um, mm-hmm. Because of that differentiation, you also have a throwback to a what's usually referred to as an Aristotelian paradigm. You have a body, uh, a, a a body, a mind and then the anima the spiritual energy that powers everything uh right. you know you have the the nose you have the the physical form and then you have the the animating factor the the spiritual energy uh this these these triads this tripod interacts with each other in the aristotelian model to create reality uh, the the mind is chained in some way to the body, and then they both inherently harness the vo- the power from the anima the to anima. yeah to animate, which is where you get the concept of animation. You use the anima to uh, imbue energy into the body that is driven by the nose or the mind, uh, which is where you get the kind of concept of universal uh, the what's called the. Uh, the world theory, the great mind theory, the, the universal connection, um, mm-hmm. the anima mundi is what it's usually referred to. Uh, and this is where you kind of get this idea of the segregation between spiritual and consciousness as well. You, everything has spiritual energy, but not everything has consciousness. Uh, so you have a distinction within Aristotle's hierarchy of entities as far as like what's sentient and what's not. A plant has anima. But it doesn't have sentience, like so. We don't have to. We don't have to feel bad eating corn because even though it's anima, we get the anima from consuming it. We're not. We're not necessarily destroying something. It's. It can get really detailed really quickly, um, and that that then translates into alchemy, and it's just all all sorts of fun stuff. But anyways, the the thing there is that the segregation between the physical and the mental is very important, and you have a similar. Uh, trichotomy, I guess, would be the best term, which I kind of just made up, but it makes sense. You have a similar tripod-esque paradigm going on here in the sense of what the Book of Unmaking is talking about. And so the Book of Unmaking is a way to transcend the the tripod into a dynamic system, a bipod system. Um, the problem with that is that anyone who's ever tried to create a stool with two legs knows that that's not going to stand up for very long. And that's where you kind of get the idea of like, is this actually, what is the point of this? Like, where, why are we sacrificing the body without it being a trap? And that's where I keep going back to, I really can't get past the fact that this seems to be a way to, to uh, remove the threat of the guardian 
without having them without them having to lift a finger because Granted, they, are they, okay so let me just interject real quick these writings are from your of what he has supposedly read somewhere else or supposedly gotten from the hive so these are technically instructions supposedly for the hive or they could be instructions supposedly for the hive rather than instructions for guardians themselves but guardians are interpreting them in their own way through lost in translation problems and so it may part of me wants to say that this may not be a trojan horse that is like physically directed towards it unless it's the old telling you to do this or whatnot mm-hmm. but this is more of a guardians embracing a power that or wanting to embrace a power that they do not understand and trying to get to that point where they can actually do it just like toland i think i think though i think that it's both right right? i think i think that it is i so and this is this is completely headcanon um by the way we have been told that there is more coming of this stuff so you know big shout yes. out to to the the team over there um i can't wait to read it so I, mm-hmm. i'm hoping that we do get a little bit more clarification going on for this but but i think you know i i keep reading this as as what we have within this into this this particular set of entries i keep reading this as exactly what you're saying but combined i see this as your using that desire of the guardians to kind of experiment on what they can do like it's they found the mad ramblings of your who is being corrupted by zior and they are trying to figure i mean like it it's a it's a it's a very convoluted mess of like what's going on i think which you know surprise it's destiny um but I think what's kind of happening is like Yor and Zior. I didn't realize ever how familiar those names are. Yor and mm-hmm. Zior are are their own uh, dyad. They're 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 their own system, right? And I and I really right. think as so if we treat them as the source material for this particular set of entries, which for intents and purposes they are, Yor is the source material for this in, this purpose. Yor's source material is Zior. Now we don't which is know the whisper, right? Right, the which whisper. is where whispers come from, um, or well, we think what, where whispers the, come from. Either her or the patrols that the bone shard, right? Whatnot. Right, and that's and that's where I'm saying is like I don't know really where the that I don't know where that particular your is the source material for the unmaking though, like for the, yes. for so. But what I'm what I am kind of reading is that your himself was being experimented on by Zor. And I, and I don't, this is an assumption. So I don't really have like a fully, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't have a full breakout of like logic as far as like what the product is of that or what the purpose of that is. But I keep getting the feeling that your is a tragic villain. Like your is a tragic character. He is a, a character that, is not a good Elf guy. It's it's not a good person. I'm not saying that, but I think that your is a product of of events outside of necessarily of his control, which mm-hmm. be- puts validity on the shadows' concern about external corruption being on the guardians. So mm-hmm. the shadows are then translating your, who is probably writing down as best he can the limited information that is being spoon fed to him in order to keep him compliant. 
So you you have this like degree of like this is spoon fed information to Yor to keep him compliant with the the man the machinations of Zior, and then they're being tra- they're being written down in Hive, which no one understands. The shadows are then using you know excuse me real quick half translation techniques to translate mm-hmm. this already biased presentation. I mean, like there's there's so many points at which. This isn't trustworthy at the end of the day. That's where I keep coming back to is like this is a this is at at best. Let's let's just pretend like this isn't there's no maleficent, you know, intent here. Like, let's Mm -hmm. let's pretend let's just for a second pretend like the hive are for the benefit of your giving the information to him with no no agenda at all. It just right. feels weird even saying that. But let's pretend like for a second that is. There is so many possibilities of mistranslation just in that scenario that as soon mm-hmm. as you throw in the the very likely probability that the hive is maneuvering your for some purpose, it just it to me it just it knocks it up to a hundred percent that we are not getting a trustworthy presentation of what's going on. Now, it's doing something. <laughs> Because it's it's you know it's like it's do it's it is corrupting things. So it it's not that it's wrong inform. It's not that it's um bad information. It's just the end product doesn't. I don't think the end. I don't think unmaking is the evolution that they're that they're being presented. It is. I think in some ways, like the corruption is the movement and you mentioned this a little bit earlier the movement from the allocentric to the egocentric which is what this book is really focusing on it oh, is yeah. focusing like, on the self self oh my, self yeah there's so much focus on the self which i mean it's again i mean transcend yeah transcendentalism and intellectualism that that is a natural that's that's not an inherently evil thing by any right. stretch of the imagination, transcendentalism and in uh, intellectualism and all that concept, you have to focus on yourself like that. Mm-hmm. Y- you can't you can't have you can't have a, a grounding of allocentric worldview and then expect to transcend on an individual level. Like now that's to be said, there are philosophies that focus on transcending on a communal level. They're kind of weird um, and they get really, I guess, uncomfortable would be the best word, uh, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're very, uh, new agey, I guess would be the best term for, it. I don't really, it's, it's like, it's extreme communalism, uh, which is really kind of a, it's interesting to read about, but I don't really understand. Like, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, obviously I don't live a yeah. But like there there are like ideas out there for for ways to transcend as a community. Uh but that's definitely not the common use of the word transcendentalism. Uh that's definitely not what's going on here uh right. within this. This is this is a hundred percent which I mean there's so many loopholes too, right? I mean, like what happens mm-hmm. if your truth that you're supposed to hold on to is the defeating of the is the defeat of the darkness? Like I mean, what what if you know, there's there's so many things of like, what if your your point of existence that you you know you honestly are is to be a good person? Like that in and of itself means that you wouldn't be like you know there's there's like <laughs> there's there's a point at which the wires just cross and it's like I I'm really interested to see if there's ever a character that we see with that particular conflict. Um, but that's just my brain going hyper like 
reading reading rules makes me immediately focus on like, well, what happens if you do this loophole? Let's um, break it. Yeah, That's what I, your yeah, mind I'm, does. I'm the skill monkey in D&D, so that, that is where my brain goes, is like, how can I min-max this to break the game? But no, I... I, I and the and the thing is is that's why I think that's what ultimately why I'm I'm so fascinated with the book of Un- is because we finally get a lore entry not that we haven't had but we get a lore entry that's like an extensive set of exactly that like, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the purpose too right it's like it's all right here's all the rules well what about this no just wait you're gonna get more rules later but you know just wait for right now um, right so I mean yeah to kind of kind of kind of shift into shout outs now that we're <laughs> Now that we're like significantly over our time, it's fine. They can uh, they can I, handle it. Our, no, no, our listeners I mean, like, are good like that. No, they they totally can. And I mean, I'm I I really I can go on forever. I like I I tweeted at John Goff. I was like, you know, big shout out to John Goff and uh, Guy uh, Cologne over on Twitter because I've been talking with both of them, and, and Guy is the the lead writer who was orchestrating like all the work that was going into this um and just i mean amazing work by that team for this and i told i i tweeted at john and i told him i was like you know the more i realize things the more i'm just gonna go find everything that you've ever worked on and just play that because uh for for you know for instance crackdown three uh Mm -hmm. he's a writer on crackdown three He's one oh, of the nice. one of the one of the big writers, and I'm like I'm enjoying the hell out of this game, and I like I enjoy Halo, which you wrote for. Like I mean, it's just like I'm like I'm like all right, I'm done. I've, I'm just gonna accept the fact that everything you've been involved with, I need to get a copy of. Indeed. So is that your shout out? Is to the two writers? That is that is my shout out. Is to the writing team that put together this amazing yes. entry. Like I just I'm I'm dead. I just I'm blown away by this. Like this is this is what I have and Green can attest to this. I have been obsessed with this particular mm-hmm. entry ever since we found out about it. Um I have significant amount of notes on this particular thing that I've just been banging my head against for trying to figure out different like possibilities. And I know and I'm completely comfortable with the fact that they're probably all wrong. Um I I, I still can't wait for the next next installment, I guess. Like, I just, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. I love them. I love it. I love it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Yeah, writing team. I'm excited to see the new stuff, as I always am. I also want to figure out what in the world's going on to Truth to Power, but, you know, that's going to take a while. But shout out for me actually goes to a podcast I was on this last week, uh, Destiny Unfiltered, and the guys over there had some good talk with... um, Man at Arms and oh gosh, now I, I'm now that I'm like shouting him out, I can't think of his names. He has one name on Discord and a different name. His name on Discord is a uh, fork spoon knife, but <laughs> it's his name on Twitter is something totally different. But uh, those guys, they were awesome. We talked about Destiny, we talked about news, we talked about Apex, we talked about Anthem, we talked about all sorts of things, and they are super awesome. So if you guys would hit them up. It is Destiny Destiny Unfiltered. Um, if you have small children with sensitive ears, that may not be the best podcast for you. Just FYI, I have met Man at Arms in person, and he is very open about what he says. He's a, he's a great guy, though. Got to meet him, hang out with him at Guardian Con. So my shout out is to them in particular this week. 
and shout out to getting up early for a class that I don't want to go to that I'm going to go to anyway because I have to. So <laughs> that's always adult adulting we'll see you guys next week next week we're going to be talking about near uh beard will be back next week to talk with us about near which i know is a big big thing for him uh a poll this weekend if you guys haven't already done that uh, by the time you listen to this please definitely weigh in on that if you have not gotten a chance to weigh in on it um and you want to please do but also be sure to let us know if there's anything that is on there that you or anything that is not on there that you would like to see on there uh because i would love to hear what you guys are interested in as you know as we go through the story and we get new content and new new focuses and all that stuff so definitely definitely keep that in i appreciate all the dispatches that we did receive from the top three last week amazing i love them uh I, I haven't had a chance to answer all of them, but I will be getting through those as quickly as I possibly can with everything else that's going on. But as always, you guys have a great week and we will see you next week. Bye. With that, we'll begin to wrap the chat up. Thank you again to those over on Twitch for coming to spend your evening with us. If you'd like to join us for the live streaming of the episodes, please be sure to give us a follow over on twitch.tv slash focusedfirechat. Links to all our episode archives can also be found at www.focusfirechat.com. Please be sure to email us at focusfirechat at gmail.com with any comments or questions for our team concerning the podcast and let us know how we're doing by giving us some feedback and a rating over on iTunes as well. Also, be sure to check out all the amazing work being featured over on thelorenetwork.com. So until next time, focus your fire and may your light shine bright.